it well to center field. Deion Sanders going back to the wall, and it is gone. Bo Jackson over. Thank you for tuning in to episode 9 of the FBAS podcast. That is Facebook All Sports. You're either downloading us, listening to us, streaming, or maybe you're listening to us live on the RTF Sports Network. This month we are nominated for Show of the Month, so definitely visit rtfsportsnetwork.com, click the banner at the top, click Facebook All Sports, and vote for your favorite show. Guys, it looks like we're out to a big lead, but I definitely think we need everybody's support. Mamba mentality, guys. We need every vote every day. Please give us all your support. Yeah, most definitely. It's a really cool opportunity. We need everybody's help. It's a long vote. It's a marathon, not a race. So hopefully we can continue the pace. And we're very, very thankful to everybody who's helped us out. So, you know, we appreciate that very, very much. This is a big episode. We are breaking it up into two parts, but you're going to get it all in one shot here. We're going to be talking about the NFL draft because that was a huge event that happened. And we're going to be talking about episodes three and four of The Last Dance. So if you liked episodes one and two that we recapped last episode, hopefully you guys will like episodes three and four as well. But you're going to have to wait till we get to the draft stuff because NFL is God in sports. Absolutely, baby. It's the moneymaker. We all know that. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, that's the way we got to go. As much as we all love what's happening currently with The Last Dance, I mean, the NFL and, and the NFL draft is our bread and butter, baby. So the NFL draft went by, we decided to take 12 different divisions and go through them and kind of pick winners, pick some losers, a couple questions that we had. I know Dan knows these prospects a lot better than me and Jesse do, so maybe he can give us some insight in some of the things that we didn't quite fully understand. I know we wanted to kick things off with the AFC East. Jesse and I are both Patriots fans, so that'll give us a chance to kind of touch on that. We're going to finish off with the NFC South, which is going to give Dan a chance to go on his favorite team, which is the Buccaneers. Guys, I don't know about you, I had for the AFC East... I had the Dolphins winning this draft. I guess when you have three first-round picks, it's kind of tough. If you lose the draft with three first-round picks, you really shouldn't be drafting. But they get Tua, the quarterback of the future. They protect him with Austin Jackson. The one that boggled my mind a little bit was Noah Ingbagagi. I don't know really how you say his name. He's a cornerback. They didn't really need a cornerback at that point in the draft. It's not one of their big needs. Safety is a bigger need. Running back's a bigger need. And you had all the running backs on the board at that point. You had better corners on the board at that point. If you really wanted to go cornerback, Diggs was still there. Gladney was still there. So I really didn't understand that pick. They do rebound with Hunt, which they can put at guard, more protection for Tua. And I really love the pick of Raquan Davis, the defensive tackle. But the biggest thing for the Dolphins for me was signing undrafted free agent Benito Jones, Defensive tackle. He was actually the number seven rated defensive tackle in the draft. He went undrafted and they signed him as an undrafted free agent. Yeah, I mean, I love Miami's draft. They're definitely my winner as well in that division. I don't think that division had a great draft. I don't think it was a bad one by any means. But I mean, outside of Miami, I had them all graded B minuses. So it's not anything to write home about. But I do think Miami had an A. I was a big fan of the two pick, especially to get him at five and not have to move up and get any capital was huge. I actually am not a fan of the Austin Jackson pick. You know, I'm not a fan of taking guys in the first round who aren't going to contribute right away. And I don't think Austin Jackson's able to start right now. I mean, I get 
their it fits their timeline, but to me, I, that's like probably the one pick I didn't like. Noah Igbenogane out of Auburn, the cornerback. I actually didn't hate it. You know, he fits their defense perfectly. He's a man cover corner. You know, that's what he does, and he does it well. And when you're in a man coverage team, you know, you need corners, all the corners you can get. So I think he kind of fits really well. I get it's not necessarily the biggest need, but you know, slot cornerbacks a huge need for every team nowadays. So I think that fits. Uh, Robert Hunt and Solomon Kendi, both the guards they drafted, I think are honestly, I think they end up starting for that football team. So I think they did a great job coming away there. Like you mentioned, Roquan Davis. They also got Jason Strobridge in the fifth, who I think is a really, really underrated defensive player. He can kind of play outside or inside. I love his versatility. And then Curtis Weaver also in the fifth, I thought was a great steal for them. He's got production. He's got technique. Yeah, he doesn't have the athleticism and and the length you look for as a pass rusher. But overall, I mean, I think they did a fantastic job. And Brian Flores, no surprise, you know, coming from his pedigree, I think is off to a great start building a good team. I really enjoyed the Dolphins draft as well. To be honest with you guys, it's not my favorite. My winner of that division is actually going to be the Jets. I think being able to draft Becton in the first round, we talked about him being one of the prize tackles there in the first, and then being able to pair Darnold with an awesome receiver like Mims, a guy that fell to the second. I thought that was a really great draft for the Jets. So I agree the Dolphins had a great draft, but having three first-round picks gives you the luxury of maybe not being looked at as hard. No, no, I'm glad you mentioned the Jets because, I mean, honestly, they they did have a very good draft. I mean, there were some picks I didn't like. Jabari Zuniga, I didn't love it in the third round. I thought there were better edge rushers. I think he's kind of going to fizzle out in the league. But Ashton Davis, I've mentioned him before on the podcast. I'm a big, big, big fan of his. I think he's going to really, really, really excel in that defense. And him and Marcus May can kind of play the safeties now, and then it frees Jamal Adams to pretty much do whatever he wants. I think that's huge. Denzel Mims, I think, is a great ad. You know, overall, I really do think they had a good draft. I just, you know, Miami's the top for me there. Yeah, I liked New York Jets draft in the sense that they took Becton with that first pick. I really thought they were going wide receiver. All the mock drafts had them taking a wide receiver. But I really felt like getting an offensive tackle, if he's there, was the right move for the Jets. And I thought that they got a great one with Makai Becton. And then I think before we get to the Patriots, I had the Bills. I really liked their draft as well. Ipanisa in the second round. You figure their first round pick is Stefan Diggs. Third round, they get Zach Moss, which I thought was a good value in the third round. The thing that puzzled me, the uh, Gabriel Davis, a wide receiver, I didn't understand why they, they didn't really need wide receiver. It wasn't a position of need. So again, kind of just discounting where they got that position and then getting Jake Fromm in the fifth, I thought was uh, a good value for him as well. Yeah, it was an overall good draft, like I said. for the, I think every team in this division had a pretty solid draft. I don't think anybody bombed it. I don't think anybody did exceptionally well outside of Miami, like I said. But Buffalo, I think AJ Epinesa shouldn't have been there. He's a good talent. You know, Zach Moss, I don't think should have been there. I think he's going to be a really good add to that team. I think he's going to run really hard. I agree. Gabriel Davis didn't make a ton of sense, but he can never have enough weapons, I guess. You know, it's kind of their thought process. And Jake Fromm, I mean, he couldn't have gone to a better situation. He's automatically the backup. They have nothing behind Josh Allen there in Buffalo. So for Jake Fromm, it's a great spot. I don't love the pick for Buffalo. I mean, we'll see, but I think he's a career backup, but overall, it wasn't terrible. Quite the contrast in arm strength. Yes, most definitely. That's why I don't know if it's the best spot for him offense-wise and, you know, location, because playing in the snow, I don't think it's going to fit Jake Fromm at all. But again, like I said, he's an immediate backup, so you can't hate that as a player. I think we all agree that neither team really, you know, had a bomb of a draft. Neither team had a fantastic draft. But, you know, I think it's time for us to open up the can of worms that is the New England Patriots. Wayne, can we have you start off with your assessment of how the New England Patriots did? Because I know you defend 
the lack of a quarterback pick harder than just about anybody, whether it's on FBAS or anybody or any other forum, you're defending their lack of a quarterback pick. Absolutely. And I fought this battle leading into the draft. I fought this battle after day one. I fought it after day two. When everyone's coming out and saying the Patriots are going to take a quarterback, you wait, Fromm's still on the board or Eason's still on the board. You watch the Patriots are taking a quarterback. And I kept saying, it doesn't make any sense to take a quarterback at this point. It really doesn't. I mean, they believe in Stidham. I believe in Stidham, but I'm not in the coaching staff or the general manager there, but they believe in the guy. They've seen him. Devin McCourty said that this guy shredded their defense in practice every day last season. He knows what he's doing. He's got a great arm. He's mobile. He's kind of play style wise, and I'm not saying ability wise, but play style wise, he reminds me a little bit of Aaron Rodgers in that kind of mobile, but he's still a pocket passer first. So I'm glad they didn't take a quarterback. That's the first take on it. Going with the first few picks, I liked the safety pick of Duggar. That was kind of the run on safeties right at that point. And they got Duggar, who's a great athlete. And I know they have a bunch of safeties on the roster already. But Bill Belichick is a guy who's like, if you're an athlete, I'll find a place for you. Josh Uche, I like as the edge rusher. He's going to help them out with Winovich as the edge as well. Then they follow that up with Jennings, who I like him as a linebacker. Where I kind of got lost was the back-to-back tight ends in the third round. I know tight end was an area of need. I guess Asiasi is kind of a uh, straight-line guy. He's a seam runner. And then you got Dalton Keene, who I guess they said is kind of a Swiss Army knife. He can play a fullback, kind of fill in that role where the retired James Devlin. And then uh, I like the pick of the kicker in the fifth round. I know he wasn't the top-rated kicker, but he's got a great foot. When they asked Bill Belichick, you know, this wasn't the top kicker on the board, why'd you take him? He said, because I like how he kicks in cold weather. And if there's any scout in the NFL that I trust to evaluate special teams, it's Bill Belichick. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm never going to be in the camp. If you take a kicker in the draft, I think it's a bad pick, plain and simple. So I guess that's kind of where I'll start to disagree. I do think New England had, I would say, the worst draft out of this group. Again, I have them rated as a B-, minus, so it's not like they had a bad draft. I just didn't, out of the group, I didn't really love what they did. I like Kyle Duggar. You know, he's going to be a versatile guy. I think he may end up playing a little bit of linebacker, you know, uh, slot corner safety kind of thing like that. And, you know, Patrick Chung's out the door soon anyway, so Kyle Duggars will step right in. He's a little old, which I think is why he may have fallen what he did. If he was 21, I think he goes first round, but he's an older guy, so... You mentioned Joshua Uche. I'm a huge fan of Joshua Uche. He actually had the highest pass rush win weight in the NCAA last year over Chase Young, over AJ Epinesa, over all these guys. He had the highest win rate. He didn't have a ton of reps, but he had the highest win rate. I didn't love the Anthony Jennings pick. I don't really like what he brings to that defense. I don't think he's a great edge rusher. I don't know. Maybe they have a different role for him envisioned. I'm not really sure. And then you mentioned the two tight ends. A CSC, a CSI, I don't know how you say it. If it's a CSC, you know, it's Spanish. That means so-so. That's the player. I mean, he's just so-so. He's, I don't think he's great at anything. You know, Bill's got kind of a good track record of decent tight ends, I guess. So I'm not sure. And then you mentioned Dalton Keene. He's going to be that H-back player, and I think that's actually a better pick than the ACSC pick because I think Bill will find a better role for Dalton Keene than he will the tight end. But, you know, overall, I just don't think you hit anything like, like nothing was spectacular. Nothing came away with, oh, nice. Like, and no wide receiver in the deepest wide receiver draft ever on a team that needed wide receivers more, arguably more than any other position on the field to not get any wide receiver, I think is a complete fail. And it reiterates as why Tom Brady may have left that franchise. I mean, yes, Stidham has all the talent in the world, but who the fuck's he going to throw the ball to? And I know you love Nikhil Harry and he may be due for a breakout year, but I mean, even even outside of that, like you throw into a 38-year-old Julian Edelman who's hurt every day, like I, I just don't see the weapons on that team, and I think they should have addressed one in this wide receiver class. 
they definitely deserve to take some heat for not taking a receiver. They certainly won't be the last team we talk about not taking a receiver, but that's for much later on in the show. To defend some of the Patriot picks, I'm with you guys. I love Joshua Uche. I think pairing him up with a college teammate of his in Chase Winovich is going to be pretty awesome. I think those two coming off the edge is going to be very fun as a Patriots fan. So this is something that I'm definitely looking forward to. I think the kicker pick was controversial, but the guy can, you know, he's got a big leg. Like Wayne said, he can kick in the weather. So that's something that Bill Belichick definitely values. I think kicking is definitely something that's more valued now with the point after kick moved back. So I think that you're seeing more kicks missed. So I think Bill is going to start to value kicker better and drafted him in the fifth. You know, at least it wasn't Sebastian Janikowski. But I think we all predicted the Patriots were going to go ahead and trade back in the first. I think it was a smart move for him. It allowed them to make more picks. I don't know a ton about the picks. You know, that's Sully's job is to research these guys. But I think that, to be honest, just looking at the paper, they grabbed positions that they needed. So I'm happy with the draft, and I will be able to grade this much better a couple years down the road. But as a Patriots fan, I'm happy because in Bill we trust. And I do think that pairing Uche with Winovich is nice. They'll probably have them on the same side. The guy that I really liked that was hurt a lot last year, and he's on the roster now, he wasn't picked in this draft, is Dietrich Wise, I think, is a guy that can get after the quarterback. When he's healthy, he's always in the backfield. He's always around the quarterback. So I'm hoping that he can stay healthy, and that will really boost their pass rush. No, I agree. That's a good shot. Dietrich Wise is a really good player. Again, if he can stay healthy, I think it's a great get. And, you know, Chase Winovich had, I think, a really successful rookie year. And I understand building through the pass rush. Again, I just think this wide receiver class was so special. And just to not get any part of it. I mean, 36 wide receivers were taken in total, which is tied for the most ever. 13 went in the first two rounds. 10 teams took at least two of them. And you guys didn't come away with one. That just blows my mind. Well, Dan, does it really blow your mind when you look at Bill Belichick's history of drafting receivers? Has he ever drafted a really good one? At that point, like I don't know. You take all these shots at tight end. I think in this draft especially, take multiple shots at the wide receiver position. Your, your odds of hitting one this year were so high, I think. Even in late rounds, like Darnell Mooney was there in the fifth. You know what I mean? Like A lot of people liked him a lot. John Hightower was there in the fifth. Quintez Cephas, Colin Johnson, like all these guys were there. Tyler Johnson was there in the fifth when you guys took a kicker. And again, like, yes, I understand kickers valued, especially in New England, but I just see wide receiver as such a premier position where you have to have multiple good players. And I just think Bill's kind of falling behind the trend here. That's all. No, man, they just signed Marquise Lee. We're all so. All right, boys, we're going to move on to the next division. Yeah, we got the AFC West. Do you want to take the lead? Or? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely ready to do that. My winner is actually the Broncos. I think the Denver Broncos had the best draft for the AFC West. I think being able to draft both Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler in the first two rounds, it's wonderful for that offense. They really need to support Drew Locke. They did in the running game. They're now doing so in the passing game. So I think that was fantastic for them. They drafted a tight end, I believe, in the fourth round as well. So again, just adding weapons to that offense. I've got the Denver Broncos as my clear-cut winner in that division. The Chiefs not far behind, though. I actually agree with you. I have the Denver Broncos winning. I have the Chiefs really, really, really close, but I have the Denver Broncos winning. You mentioned Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler. I mean, if you could add two pieces to an offense that were tailor-made to fit that offense, it was those two guys. I think Jerry Judy fits perfectly outside or inside. KJ Hamler fits inside. I think they were really good picks, and they're going to make that offense really good. Lloyd Cushenberry and Natane Mute, I think, are both going to be really underrated selections. Both players, I think, have the ability to start along the offensive line early. Natane Mute's probably had a lot of injury concerns, and I'm guessing a ton of red flags, because his tape suggested he should have gone a lot higher. But if he can stay healthy, I mean, that could 
be a steal. Albert Awekibanam, the tight end out of Missouri, I think has the ability to be a really good player. He never was able to put it together at Missouri, but all the athletic talents there. And they grabbed a really solid undrafted free agent, Asang Bisset, the cornerback out of Wake Forest. The kid's going to start at slot corner, put money on it. I think he is an easy NFL-ready player. I think he's 5'8 with cleats on, though. So I think a lot of teams just kind of took him off his board. But I'm telling you right now, I think he's going to start slot corner for that team. He's incredibly talented. I had the Broncos a second, so kind of flipped with you guys. I had the Chiefs winning the draft, and I had the Broncos second. My only question with the Broncos was taking the back-to-back receivers, K.J. Hamler in the second round. You'd already addressed the wide receiver need. Offensive tackle, still a need. And on the board, you still had Josh Jones. You still had Ezra Cleveland. You still had Lucas Niang were on the board. And you decided to pass on them and took Hamler, who wasn't even the top-rated wide receiver at that time. Mims is still on the board. Brian Edwards is still on the board. So that one was kind of a puzzling pick to me. With the Chiefs, I really like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. He's not my favorite running back in the draft, but I think he does fit their system. I think he's going to be a good fit there with what Kansas City does. I think he's basically a Brian Westbrook type, and I know Andy Reid knows how to use that guy. Great comp. Yeah, I think when you look at Willie Gay, I think was a great grab at 31 in the second round. Lucas Niang, again, they get him in the third round. A lot of those offensive tackles went really late, later than I expected. And then undrafted free agent, they get Javaris Davis, cornerback, and I thought that he was the 12th rated corner in the draft, and they end up getting him as an undrafted free agent. So overall, I know it was close, Broncos, Chiefs. I kind of went with the Chiefs first and the Broncos too. Wayne, always the contrarian. I definitely had the Chiefs so, so close. I think that running back pick, the pick that we talked about being a luxury pick for that team at the end of the first round, they couldn't have had a better running back fall to them. That guy's tailor-made for Andy Reid in that offense. I know we don't talk a ton of fantasy football yet, but we will certainly get into it much more as that season picks up. But I think that this guy is the easy first overall pick in rookie drafts because he's got the best fit in this offense. Yeah, Clyde Edwards-Alaire is a really good fit. I do think it's a luxury pick, and, you know, I do think cornerback was kind of a big need for them. But, you know, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, like you guys mentioned, is the ideal receiving threat in that team. Brian Westbrook is such a good comp. I mean, that's fantastic. I think I could really see that out of Edwards-Alaire. I think we know how much I love Willie Gay. I had him rated as the second-best linebacker in the draft, if not for the character concerns. But man, the guy's got talent oozing, and I think he's an instant starter. And then Lucas Niang, I think he contributed at either tackle position or either guard position. So I think he's going to be a really versatile guy along that line. So I, I agree. I think it was a really good draft for Kansas City, which is no surprise for Andy Reid. I mean, the guy's a vet. I didn't understand what the Raiders were doing. The Raiders took three wide receivers in their first four picks, and they started with Henry Ruggs, who was the first receiver off the board, which was automatically mind-blowing. It wasn't Judy or CeeDee Lamb. But I know the Raiders love speed, and they draft speed ahead of everything else, except at corner, where they took Arnett with the second first-round pick. And the guy was, I think, the 13th or 14th rated corner, and they'd take him at number 19 overall. The guy ran a 4-6 or a 4 five, 5 or something like that. So for a team that loves speed and values speed, they took one of the slower corners. And then, again, Bowden at 3-16. and 16. Brian Edwards isn't bad at 3-17, but, I, again, three wide receivers out of your first four picks. I, I didn't understand that. I definitely agree. I think that the Raiders had the worst draft of this division. They took the right position with their first of their two first-round picks, but the wrong player. I think that Al Davis's shadow lives on. Speed, speed, speed. This isn't as bad as the older Darius Hayward Bay pick, but Ruggs, I still obviously love him as a player. Roll Tide but I just don't think it was the best pick for them. Mayock has a knack for taking cornerbacks that he knows more than others do. So Arnett, I don't like the pick just like you don't, Wayne, but Mayock must like him. So these guys are my clear-cut losers. I didn't like the draft at all. 
And then the Chargers, they're probably my second loser. I didn't like Herbert at six. I don't like Herbert at all. And then to trade back in the first round to get a linebacker that I thought that he wasn't even the best linebacker that at that point in time. I thought that the Raiders were bad and the Chargers were almost as bad. Yeah, I mean, I think I may have them neck and neck with another team is the worst draft in the whole thing. I, I don't think I liked a single Chargers pick. I mean, Kenneth Murray is a maybe a day one contributor. I think he'll start, but I'm not really in love with, with Kenneth Murray. I don't think he offers a lot in today's game as far as coverage. I think he's a sideline to sideline, bang him out player. And I mean, he may translate and make a ton of tackles, you know, and prove us all wrong. But again, I didn't think he was the best linebacker on the board. And you guys know my feelings on Justin Herbert. I don't think he's going to be a good quarterback at all. I think Los Angeles was a bad situation for him to go to. I think they should have traded up and taken Tua 100%. I think they fell for the smokescreen that Tua wasn't going to go to Miami. I don't know what happened there, but I think they had a terrible draft. I graded it an F. Las Vegas was really weird. It was a roller coaster draft. There's some picks I like a ton, and there's some picks I don't like at all. I actually like the Henry Road picks a lot. It was probably the best pick in general, but... I mean, you can't hate grabbing a dynamic wide receiver. Yes, maybe Jerry Judy was a little better, but there were some injury concerns about his knee that were flagged right before the draft. I think CeeDee Lamb should have gone here, but Henry Ruggs is a good pick. Damon Arnett's obviously a confusing one. He's also 25, and I hate drafting old guys. Like, he's going to be 30 by the time his rookie deal's over. I don't know. Like, I don't like that at all. Lynn Bowden, or Bowden, however his name is pronounced, I'm not entirely sure, is going, I think, to be a really good chess piece for them, but I don't know if I love it, like you said, with grabbing that much capital in the same position. I'm not a Brian Edwards fan. Over 70% of his production came off screens last year, and I don't like that number at all. Plus, you talk about speed, I'm pretty sure he ran in the four sixes. But Amik Robertson, I think is, again, I think he's going to start at nickel corner. I think he may be one of the better nickel corners in this league in a short amount of time. I'm a big fan of his. So, like, there's some picks I like and there's some picks I don't. Overall, I don't think they had a great draft, but the Chargers just, I think, really shit the bed. So I think it's two teams that excelled and had tremendously good drafts. Both the Broncos and the Chiefs I actually rate as A drafts. And then the Chargers and the Raiders, I I have them rated as really low drafts. So that's night and day in that division. So now on the AFC North, and honestly, I think this may be the best division in all of the draft. They killed it. Baltimore overall just absolutely crushed this draft. They're, I think, my clear-cut winners. They grabbed so much value at every spot in the draft, and it's just insane. Patrick Queen, to fall to them at 28, is one of the biggest gifts, I think, that's ever happened in sports. I mean, the guy's tailor-made to fit this scheme. He has so much talent, so much speed. It's insane that he fell to them at 28. I thought he was going to go a lot earlier. J.K. Dobbins in the second round. I mean, I'm not a big fan of taking running backs early. You guys know that. And I think second round is early in the NFL nowadays. But J.K. Dobbins fits that team and what they do. They want to run the football. That's such a good pick. Justin Matabuke is such a great value. Interior defensive lineman that's going to make a difference and an impact. Devin Duvernay is a speed demon who's going to open up the entire field. Malik Harrison shouldn't have been there in the third round. I mean, he's a starting caliber linebacker. Ben Bredesen is an interior offensive lineman that's going to give them valuable depth. Geno Stone in the seventh round is probably my favorite pick. I think I've talked about him before on the podcast. There's not a better heady, instinctual player in this entire draft than Geno Stone. He knows what play you're going to run on offense before you run it 90% of the time. If you watch his, his tape, it's crazy how often he's in the perfect position. And in, in that defense where it's, it's kind of zone dictated, I think he's going to be so good. I mean, overall, Baltimore absolutely crushed this draft. I think they did such a good job. 
So, Dan, I got to say, I also like Baltimore's draft, but to me, Cincinnati actually won this draft and for the division, the AFC North. I think that some people may question how the team that has the number one overall pick can win the division, but I think they obviously crushed it there. But their second and third round picks also were great values. I think that T. Higgins is a great pick for them. And then the linebacker uh, is slipping my name right now. Dan, you, you got his name. Logan Wilson. Yes, thank you. I think th- those are three great picks for Cincinnati. For a franchise that is clearly turning a page, you know that they had a direction in mind and they committed to it. So I loved what they did. I obviously love what Baltimore did, but for me, this is par for the course. They draft great every year. They have a wonderful front office. And then, you know, to be honest, I think the Browns had a really good draft as well. So I'd probably rank them one, two, and three in that order. I think being able to draft Wills in the first round for the Browns is really good. They needed a very big offensive lineman to put on the other side of Conklin. And then they got Delpit in round two. And I know that that's Wayne's crush as far as draft safeties go. So I think those three teams had good drafts. Wayne, who do you have as your winner in this division? So it's funny, just kind of touching on your guys' points there. The Ravens always draft good, so I definitely think they had a great draft as well. J.K. Dobbins is actually my favorite running back in the draft. I love the way he runs the football. So I like Jonathan Taylor, but J.K. Dobbins, the way he runs the football, is so much power and so much speed. I just really love watching him run the ball. I think that's such a great pick for them. So that was my favorite pick for them. The Bengals, I agree with you, got good value with those first three picks. I did like the T. Higgins pick. Even though it's a little high, I do like what he brings to the table. And I think he's a good fit with Joe Burrow there. And the Browns are the team I actually had winning the division. So going with a third team out of the three of us, I love the Jedrick Wills pick at offensive tackle with their first pick. I know that Thomas was a better fit, but the Giants snagged him at four. So I think that getting Jedrick Wills at number 10 was a great grab. Like you mentioned, Delpit, one of my favorite players in the draft. They get him in the second round. I would have loved if he went to the Patriots, but that's fine. He goes to the Browns. I thought Phillips was a little bit of a reach. Elliott was a good pick in the third round, but Phillips was a bit of a reach because there were six linebackers on the board that were rated ahead of him. But then in the fourth round, they get Harrison Bryant, who was the number two rated tight end in the whole draft. Now, why do I like that pick so much? Not because it's going to help the Browns, because who gives a shit about them? It's because that means Bill Belichick's on the phone talking about David Njoku. I may have to show you my notes after this. I knew you were going to bring that exact point up. As soon as Harrison Bryant, I knew you said, oh, and David Njoku is getting shipped off to the Patriots. <laughs> I mean, I agree with both of your guys' take. I mean, I think Cincinnati and Cleveland both had a tremendous draft as well. I think they really hit a ton of needs. You know, I think Baltimore just exceeded and hit so much value. It was just crazy to me, the players that kept falling to them. But obviously, Cincinnati, you know, you can't understate how important Joe Burrow is going to be to that franchise and already is to that franchise. I mean, he's lighting up Cincinnati right now. The, the town's so abuzz. It's crazy. You guys know I'm not the biggest T. Higgins fan. I don't think he gets a ton of separation. I don't think he succeeds a lot in the NFL. But at the value and the spot, I don't hate it. I think they should have taken Michael Pittman there, but that's just me personally. Logan Wilson and Nakeem Davis-Gaither, both the linebackers they selected, I'm a big fan of. I think Nakeem Davis-Gaither actually has the ability to make more of an impact. I think he's more of like the coverage nowadays linebacker, but both of them I think I'm a big fan of. And then so, you know, overall, I think they did a very good job. I didn't hate Cincinnati's draft at all. Cleveland also crushed it. You know, you guys mentioned Wills. 
he might be the most NFL-ready of the bunch. Again, I don't know if he's going to transition to the left side right away. I don't know how that's going to go because he, he spent his whole career on the right side. And I know people are just like, oh, it's just it's the same position. Well, it's not. Like, everything's different. But again, he's got the ability to do it. Delpit's a great pick. We've talked about him a, a lot. I think he's a really good fit in that defense. He's such a playmaker. He's so versatile. Jordan Elliott's crushed SEC competition for a long time. And if that's one of the things I took away from this draft is that teams value SEC competition, I think, more than others. A lot of SEC guys, I think, were drafted ahead of other guys on my board. And I I noticed that as the draft was happening. I'm glad you pointed out Jacob Phillips. I don't think he fits the draft at all, especially with the linebackers that were available. And Nick Harris, I think, was a sneaky good pick in the fifth round. I think he's got the ability to start at center if he gets a little base strength. He's always in the right position. Technically, he's very good. He's just not strong enough yet. So if he gets in an NFL camp and gets strong, I mean, I, I love Cleveland. I mean, by the sound of it, I think it sounds like we all weren't a big fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers draft, and they are who I have rated as the worst draft in this group. They obviously didn't have a first-round pick because they traded for Micah Fitzpatrick, who is a wonderful player in the league. But I think they had a decent second-round pick in Chase Claypool. They have a decent history of drafting receivers, but beyond that, I didn't like their drafts at all. So they were an easy loser in that division for me. Yeah, I mean, I didn't hate Chase Claypool. I think he's a good player. It's just... You know, I think there were bigger needs and and other players available. Alex Highsmith has a big ceiling, and I think he can play well. His level of competition, you're not sure what you're going to get from Charlotte. Kevin Dotson was a player who uh, I think went higher than a lot of people who followed expected, but I think he kind of went where a lot of NFL evaluators expected him to go. It's just a draft I didn't love. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love the draft overall. And in the division where all three of the other teams had such a team-improving draft, like a vastly team-improving draft, Pittsburgh just kind of default turned out to be my loser of this division. I think the biggest reason that the Steelers ended up being the loser in the division is because... No, they're the Pittsburgh Steelers, and they're a bunch of losers. So, Steelers fans, don't forget to vote for us for show of the month. I mean, or don't. Either way, it's up to you. All right, so the AFC South, we're kind of wrapping up the AFC here. I had the Jaguars winning the draft. I think that they addressed all of their needs except for tight end, but I love C.J. Henderson. Clavon Chason's a great pick. I think LaVisca Chenault was probably my favorite pick that they took. I like Hamilton. They get him in the third round. Jake Lutton I have on here just because it's like, well, they get a backup to Minshew. They needed that, and they get somebody in the sixth round. I don't even know if he'll make the team. But undrafted free agent. He may. He may. Undrafted free agent. They got J.R. Reed at safety. Uh, He was the number 10 rated safety, so it's a good undrafted free agent signing for them. My biggest thing I said, you know, to to really hammer down with an A-plus for me, I loved all the picks. Like I said, I like Hamilton as a pick, but I would have liked it better if they'd taken Gallimore there. Yeah, no, I think they crushed it. I have Jacksonville winning as well. I'm really glad you mentioned J.R. Reed. I'm not entirely sure. This is where I wish I had some kind of NFL connect or something. I got to know why he fell. I think J.R. Reed should have gone in the, you know, fifth, sixth, fourth round range, that area. And I'm not sure why he went undrafted. I mean, he seriously has a chance to start for that team, I think. Like, legit. C.J. Henderson, we've talked about. Incredibly good man coverage talent. I think he just made sense for them at nine. Just such an easy pick. Clavon Chase on apparently they keyed on him hard. If if CJ Henderson wasn't there at nine, there's talk that they were going Clavon Chase on at nine, which I think would have been crazy. But I mean to get him at twenty, obviously they loved. You mentioned Visca. I think he might end up being the steal of the draft, especially in that offense. I think they're going to give him the ball a lot underneath because that's what Gardner Minshew does best. Just dump the ball, and I think this is going to have a chance to shine if he's healthy. Ben Barch could start at either tackle or guard. I'm a big fan of his. I know he's got the under 34-inch arms, which everybody hates at offensive tackle, but I think he's got the ability to play there or at guard. I think I came away really, really, really in, like enjoying what Jacksonville did, which is a surprise because that franchise is normally a mess. 
Yeah, we actually all agree to Jacksonville winning the AFC South, the draft at least. I think their first three picks really knocked it out of the park. I do actually want to mention the Titans as honorable mention. I really like their first two picks. I think being able to get Fulton where they got him in the second round, considering some of the corners that went before them. We'll get into some of the other corners that went before them, but I think that Fulton is a good corner to get in the second round. So Titans were my honorable mention, but I do agree. Jacksonville is the winner of that division. Today I had the Colts finishing second because I really loved the Colts draft. I loved them getting Michael Pittman at the start of the second round. I liked the Jonathan Taylor. I think he's going to be really great there. I think that means that Marlon Mack might be on his way out with the uh, drafting of Taylor. And I like that they got Jacob Eason in the fourth round because I know there were talk that, you know, Jacob Eason could have been a second round pick. I know there was some buzz. Obviously, anything can happen before the draft and the buzz is usually just smoke screens. But I think they get a guy that they can groom at quarterback as the third string guy behind Brissett and Rivers. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I liked uh, Indianapolis's draft. I just, I, I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of Jonathan Taylor at the spot they took him. I mean, you guys know my, my issue with him and his fumbles. And I, 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 yeah, fumbleitis. Yeah. It's like, what, every, every two and a half games, this guy drops the ball. Yeah, and I mean, you just can't have that in the NFL. I mean, maybe, you know, they can get it out of him. But I, I'm not a big fan of, of that in the NFL. I don't I don't like how that translates. But I'm a huge Michael Pippen fan, and I'm a huge Jacob Beeson fan, especially in that system, in that offense, learning behind Phillip Rivers, who's a gym rat. I mean, the guy just lives for film, and I think he can if he can implement that on a Jacob Beeson, I think the sky may be the limit. Overall, though, outside of Jacksonville, I think this entire division just did it awful awful job outside of christian fulton i didn't like a single tennessee pick isaiah wilson i just don't see it especially at 30 i, I just think you could have gotten such a more impactful player for a team that was so close to a championship last year to get a project offensive tackle that's probably not going to have a huge impact in year one i just don't really understand christian fulton i think was a nice get but beyond that like i don't think they did anything really to improve their ball club and Houston, I mean, God, this is, I mean, damn, it's bad. I mean, Ross Blacklock, I think, is a good kid. I think he's got a ton of talent. He's a 4-3 defensive tackle who's going to be a strictly 3-tech and shoot the gap. But after that, I think Jonathan Grenard is arguably the biggest reach of the whole draft. I wasn't a huge fan in, the, in round three. I don't think he really kind of fits their defense. Charlie Heck, I think, is just nothing more than a backup tackle. Again, they, I don't think they really added anything to a team that we, I think we all think is a pretty good ball club, and they just didn't really add much, and I, I just hate Well, what they did add was a second round pick for DeAndre Hopkins. How about that? Woo! I mean, to lose DeAndre and get like nothing back. Like, I don't know. That team is just bad. Yeah, that defensive tackle pick in the second round is the only pick worth mentioning for them. The Texans and Bill O'Brien suck. The NFC East, we start off with, I have the Dallas Cowboys winning this draft. And I want to say something. I've said this on other podcasts that we've done. I think that Jerry Jones is the best drafting general manager in the NFL. Now, he does a lot of things bad. He's got hands-on when he shouldn't. I don't think he does a very good job picking the coaching staff. He may not be great at signing free agents or retaining his players. But when it comes to drafting players, I don't think anybody does it better than Jerry Jones. And, I mean, getting C.D. Lamb at number 17, obviously that's just luck. That fell to him. But still, he knew enough to take him. Trayvon Diggs with his next pick. Neville Gallimore with the next pick. I like Reggie Robinson, Tyler Biedez as the center. You needed a replacement on the offensive line. I just think from start to finish, and even undrafted free agent Rico Dowdy at running back, it's like the guy just knows how to build a team. He just doesn't know how to run a team. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I I have Dallas as my winner also. I actually think this division did well as a group, but I think Dallas kind of separated themselves. Like you said, you mentioned CeeDee Lamb and him taking him as luck. That shit ain't luck. You know, every other team ahead of him had a chance to fucking pick him, and they weren't smart enough to do so. So I, I don't know. There are different variations to how you draft, and I think what makes 
Jerry Jones so good at it is he's going to take the best talent available almost kind of regardless of need a lot of times. Now, yes, he's going to grab his needs and things like that, but if there's a talent like CeeDee Lamb there, he's going to grab him. Yeah, wide receiver isn't the biggest need, but you can't pass a guy like that. Trevin Diggs is just a perfect fit for that system. I don't know if he's going to have the best first year. I think he's going to get targeted a lot because I think he's going to start. But, I mean, the guy's just such a good talent. You guys know how much I love Neville Gallimore. I mean, in that defense, too, wow, I think he's going to make a great impact. That may be, like, your sneaky biggest impact of the draft for them. Tyler Biadotis, you know, he's got shoulder issues, you know, but he's a three-year starter at Wisconsin. He's a Remington Award winner. I mean, the guy's got the pedigree. Even if you only get five, six years out of him, if it's high-value years, it's a great pick. And then Bradley and I, I know they waited too long, I think, to address their edge, but to get a guy like Bradley and I that late in the draft, who I think we've talked about or I've talked about has some of the best hands and some of the most violent strong hands in the entire draft I think that's a guy if he can just get over that athletic edge and that athletic hump you know to where he can get the bend a little better his hands are are NFL ready I love Dallas's draft through and through I concur with you guys. I think that need is overrated a lot of times. And, you know, teams like the Las Vegas Raiders passed on C.D. Lamb and it fell right into Dallas's lap and a wonderful player to, you know, add into this offense. When you think of their offense before this pick, was it something they needed? No, but it's it's fantastic value. This guy is going to be amazing. So I love what the Dallas Cowboys did top to bottom, like what you guys said. They had great picks, especially in the first three rounds. I also like what the Giants did. I think that in round one, it honestly shocked me that they went Andrew Thomas over Simmons and over some of the other O-linemen. But, you know, the more you read about him, this guy is for sure one of the elites that was going to be drafted at the offensive line position. And then I certainly liked Xavier McKinney a lot. I know that Dan liked him as well. So I think that it was a good second round pick for the Giants. Is he going to replace Landon Collins? No, Landon Collins is an, an NFL All-Pro in my opinion. But another Alabama player, you know, roll tide and I think that the Giants had probably the second best draft in this division yeah I liked the pick as well of McKinney in the second round I think Thomas did surprise a lot of people that he was the first tackle off the board because I think of all the big name tackles he might have been the lowest rated you had Wills ahead of him Worfs ahead of him Becton ahead of him and he was kind of like the fourth guy and so for him to be the first one off the board I was a little surprised but if they really like him and they think he fits his system it's still a first round talent a top 10 talent they get at the offensive tackle position the one that puzzled me in that division and I know Dan will probably talk about the Giants as well but the Eagles I don't know what the hell they're doing. Jalen Hurts with a second round pick. I didn't understand that at all. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Jalen Hurts, you know, on this pod. You guys know I'm I'm really not a big fan. So the argument is that a backup quarterback is now a top 30 position in the league. And I don't hate the argument. I actually kind of understand that side of it. And especially with a guy like Carson Wentz, I understand Philadelphia's kind of side of that. Now, to me, I wouldn't have taken him there. Now, if you take him in the third, like if you grab Willie Gay in the second because their linebackers are awful and atrocious and they really didn't do anything, I don't think Davion Taylor is a player that moves the needle for them and really does anything and kind of impact-wise. You know, so if they go Willie Gay in the second and then go Jalen Hurts in the third, you know, granted, you know, he may not be there, blah, blah, blah. But I'm just saying in an ideal world, I think that's his his best value. Overall, though, I think they had a good draft. I think Kayvon Wallace is an instant contributor and I think he's arguably the best nickel corner. I know I've said that a lot about 
of other different players, but I think that's such a big position in this draft or in this league now that it's so important to have a really good third corner. You know, Nickel is essentially the base defense now, and Kayvon Wallace was essentially Isaiah Simmons. If Isaiah Simmons was playing slot corner, well, then Kayvon Wallace was safety. If Isaiah Simmons was safety, then Kayvon Wallace was the slot corner. If, you know, he played linebacker a lot too, so he was kind of that guy. He's just no, nowhere near Isaiah Simmons' athletic ability, and I think Jack Driscoll's a versatile player along the offensive line. Overall, though, I think they're going to get bashed for that Jalen Hurts pick, and I don't think it was the worst pick in the world. I think they had a solid draft overall. Jalen Rager's a really good player. To touch on the Giants just for a bit, Andrew Thomas was my number two offensive tackle, so I think he went kind of in the spot he should have gone. Landon Collins doesn't play for the Giants anymore, Jesse. Uh, he plays for Washington, so he won't have an issue. Can he get playing time there? I do think he's going to have an issue. Him and Jabril Preppers are kind of the same player. You know, they're both kind of in-the-box safeties, I think. So I don't know how Xavier McKinney's going to be in a true deep safety role. So we'll see how that plays out. Overall, though, I think they had a solid draft. Darnay Holmes is a really good corner. I think he's got a lot of ability again in the slot. It looks like, you know, a lot of teams targeted that position this draft. And that's kind of a common theme for me is it's a very valued position, in my opinion. So what was your take on Jalen Hurts, Jesse? It was certainly a puzzling pick. I didn't expect him to go to that team. I can certainly agree with you guys, or at least your take, Sully, that it makes sense for the Eagles specifically. We know about Wentz's injury history. I mean, for, for goodness sake, Nick Foles won them a championship. So Wentz has a lot of injury history. So it makes sense to grab a quarterback. I just don't know if this was the right offense for them. So puzzling to say the least, not my favorite quarterback pick. I wish him the greatest success, you know, being a former Alabama guy and then moving over to Oklahoma, but not my favorite pick. I think I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Redskins at all. We know that we have a couple FBAS guys that love the Redskins. Sully, we know they drafted a potential all-pro guy in Chase Young uh, for the next few years, but who else did they draft in this draft here? You know, a lot of FBAS guys may hate me for this one. I, I wasn't a big fan of Washington's draft. I, I liked a lot of the players they got, but not the fit and value, kind of. So Chase Young's a Hall of Famer. I mean, the guy, he is what he is. He's going to step on the field day one, and I think he's going to be a top 10 pass rusher in the league. So that immediately gets you a B, I think. You know what I mean? Antonio Gibson, I don't think I talked about him enough during the draft process, but, I mean, at 66, I think was just too early for him. I didn't like him there. And I also don't think it's a need that needs to be addressed on a Washington Redskins team where there's a thousand other needs in every other position. They traded away Trent Williams and got a fifth and then a third next year and then didn't really address the tackle position in the third round with Josh Jones, which would have made a ton of sense. Now, they did it with Sadiq Charles, who I actually like as a talent, but I mean, the off-the-field issues are going to be something that you got to worry about, and I just don't think he's a plug-and-play player. So, you know, Dwayne Haskins is going to be in kind of the same hell he was last year with no real protection. Antonio Gandy-Golden, I, I, I love him a lot. I actually really do. I'm a big fan. That was one of their picks I really liked. However, again, I don't know if he's NFL-ready to contribute, and they need a receiver that's NFL-ready. They did sneakily get... Thaddeus Moss is an undrafted free agent, which whoever, the guy who told him to come out of this and go into the draft, I think is a fail. I think he should have stayed one more year, but Moss going undrafted hurts. But, you know, I mean, it, I think it's going to be a good pickup for Washington. Yeah, I agree that Washington did not, did not have anything that really wowed me other than Chase Young. Other than that, the rest of their picks are just kind of yawn to me. Again, as a Redskins fan, maybe you feel differently. I know with the Patriots picks, every pick I was like trying to justify in my mind how this guy is going to make an immediate impact. And maybe Redskins fans do the same thing with their team. 
In the NFC West, uh, my clear-cut winner is actually going to be the 49ers. I think earlier we talked about a team in the draft that had two first-round picks in Las Vegas, and I think we all agreed they pretty much busted with them. Well, here we talk about San Francisco having two first-round picks, and I think they nailed both of them. I think that Javon Kinlaw, as Sully has mentioned, is just a genetic freak, and to get him where they got him is awesome value. And then Brandon Ayuk, the more I learned about him after Sully brought him up in his position breakdown, I really enjoyed the guy, and I thought that this was a great place for him to end up. I think that being able to end up in San Francisco with Kyle Shanahan, this is a really great first draft for these two picks. So I'm really happy with the 49ers draft. I also really like the Cardinals draft. I think Simmons being able to fall at eight is something that I didn't expect. And then Josh Jones, I think him you know, ending up as a third-round pick, the O-lineman out of Houston, I think that the Cardinals had a good draft. So they're my runner-up in that division. I mean, you say clear slam dunk winners, the 49ers. I think the Cardinals won this draft. It's not even a question in the West. I mean, Isaiah Simmons, arguably the most talented player in the draft. I had him ranked third. Could have had him as as one if you really wanted to. Josh Jones, I had him as my 16th overall player in the draft, I think. I mean, the guy is just, I think, was an NFL-ready player. If he doesn't even contribute at right tackle and they want to go with Marcus Gilbert, he'll start at left guard or right guard for him, too, and I think that's a great pick. Bryson Hopkins in the fourth round at tight end, I think, is solid value. They addressed the defensive line in Leaky Fotu and Rashard Lawrence, who I think were good. Oh, yeah, and they got DeAndre Hopkins for a second-round pick. I mean, like, we can't forget that. Like, that has to be included, I think, in their draft grade. And, and I mean, that the, the value they got in their first three picks with Isaiah Simmons, technically DeAndre Hopkins, and Josh Jones, I don't think you're going to find anywhere else. They absolutely crushed this fucking draft. I mean, I love San Francisco also. Javon Kinlaw, ideal situation. He has a chance to be more productive. He's my sneaky rookie of the year player. If, if I'm picking a defensive rookie of the year right now, it's either Isaiah Simmons or Javon Kinlaw. I know Chase Young's going to be the popular pick, and it makes a lot of sense, but I think Javon Kinlaw's got a, the real ability to get, you know, 10 to 12 sacks along that defensive line because everybody's going to be paying attention elsewhere. And Brandon Ayuk is just the ideal fit for that scheme. Kyle Shanahan values guys and their ability after the catch. I mean, he turned Debo Samuel into a star. You know, Brandon Ayuk's arguably more dynamic after the catch. So, you know, you put those two guys in that offense, and and I really do like what they did. They just didn't have enough, like, overall to, I think, they only had, like, four picks total or something like that. But, I mean, I love really what they did. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I had the San Francisco 49ers winning the draft as well because I completely forgot about DeAndre Hopkins. So you changed my mind on that. The Cardinals definitely won the draft. But the 49ers, uh, I did like Kinlaw. I liked Ayuk falling to them at 25 because I know a lot of mocks had them taking Henry Ruggs early and then trying to find a defender late. Well, they went with their defensive player early and they got a receiver late and it worked out great for him. Plus, we didn't mention they traded a fifth round pick for Trent Williams and a third next year. I almost forgot about that. Yeah, exactly. That's fantastic. And, you know, what they did with their defensive line pick, which I think was the perfect strategy, is go defensive line first and then wait for a receiver in such a deep class, too, is, you know, they build a strength. And I think that's what works in the NFL nowadays. Like, you build to your strength and you make the other team adjust. So their defensive line literally makes you adjust your entire game plan. So to put a guy like Javon Kinlaw on that, it just amps that up. It's insane. I love it. I didn't love what Los Angeles or Seattle did. What about you, Jesse? 
I actually like the Los Angeles pick of Cam Akers in round two. I mean, I think there's certainly a hole with Gurley gone now. And then I, I also liked uh, Van Jefferson. I think he was a receiver we really didn't touch on a lot in your breakdown, but I thought that when you consider that Goff needs more weapons on offense, I didn't hate what the Rams did. My easy loser is actually what Seattle did. I think Jordan Brooks was a bit reachy to me, and uh, I really didn't like the remainder of their draft. So Seahawks are the easy loser in that division. Yeah, I thought that the Rams were kind of boring. My favorite pick of the Rams was actually Terrell Lewis in the third round at linebacker. I thought that was a good get there. But Seattle, I really didn't understand. You know, at the end of the first round, cornerbacks are starting to fly off the board now. All the big names are coming off. And instead of grabbing one, which was an area of need for them, they decided to take Jordan Brooks. I, I just didn't get it. So the odd thing about the Seahawks is if you go back and look at their drafts, they're going to always draft spark score, high athletic guys. They're always going to draft this compiled spark score. It's always going to be Seattle number one. And again, this year, that's what they did. Jordan Brooks is a spark phenom. You know, so is Daryl Taylor. I didn't love the draft, but Jordan Brooks is a really good fit in Seattle. I mean, what he does actually really fits well there. I just wish they would have gotten him at a different point. Robinson, I like. I didn't love Seattle's draft, and I agree. I think they lost, but I, I I really hated the Rams draft, too. You guys say you like Cam Akers. I like him, too, but not over J.K. Dobbins, which is where they took him. Van Jefferson is a technician. I think he's going to contribute right away, especially in that offense. I like him a lot. Terrell Lewis and, and Terrell Burgess, I think, will actually be good contributors, too. But, I mean, that team, Andrew Whitworth, 107 years old, and is probably going to die next season. They have nobody at guard. Jared Goff went from being an NFC candidate to be an MVP, and they were such a good football team, to the guys running for his life every play. And to not address the offensive line at all, I think is just a huge fail for that team. But we'll see what they do. Uh, I'm not really sure. Before we move on to the next division, I do just want to know, I want to get you guys' opinion, honestly, on the lack of trades. I don't think we saw our first one until pick 13, and I know that was actually a pick we'll get into towards the end of our breakdown here, but a lack of trades there in the first round. We saw a pick up after that, but I think we know that we, we did talk a lot about the 49ers, but that's a team specifically that I think would have liked to have traded back in either or both of their picks. You talked about their lack of picks, Sully. I'm sure they would have liked to get more, so... They tried, I'm sure, the lack of movement with the trades for sure. But I think in a draft where they wanted to trade back, they couldn't. They got two guys that are for sure going to be playmakers on their team. Yeah, definitely. I did think it was a little odd. I, I mean, I can only speculate as to why there weren't trades. My speculation is, you know, you really didn't have the ability, I think, to like call everyone and, and get it done beforehand. I, I, so the rumor is Tampa called everyone from – six to 14 to move up and they couldn't I don't think teams really wanted to move down and it takes two to tango so I don't really have a significant reason but I'm not entirely sure speaking of teams that wanted to move down Minnesota was one of those teams involved in that trade and I think clearly clearly won the draft for the north I mean I think they had man one of the better drafts in the entire league to be honest with you I loved what they did from top to bottom you know I mentioned in our FBAS mock when he traded up for T. Higgins, and I thought he was trading up for Justin Jefferson, and they went and took Justin Jefferson. And then when he went and took Trayvon Diggs, I told him they should have took Jeff Gladney. He's a perfect fit in Mike Zimmer's defense. And they went ahead and took Jeff Gladney. So I obviously love both those picks. I think Kirk Cousins is going to get an immediate relationship with Justin Jefferson and just really flourish. Jeff Gladney's battle-tested. The kid has a ton of reps uh, and a ton of targets. 
at TCU, and, and I think he's just going to come in ready to play, and he's just feisty. I just love his game. Ezra Cleveland, we talked about, you know, in the range of where he would go. I thought he'd go in the top end of that range, Wayne. You know, he went in the bottom end of that range, but I still think that's a great get for Minnesota. I think they've got a real opportunity to have a player there that can start at guard and then move into offensive tackle if they need him to. Cameron Dantzler was good value. I think James Lynch is an interior defensive player that's really good. I mentioned Troy Dye, and I think he's one of the better coverage linebackers of this entire draft, so I obviously love that pick. I mean, I just think Minnesota did a fantastic job from top to bottom. Yeah, I liked Minnesota's draft a lot. Like you said, Jefferson. I thought it was funny they took Jefferson and Gladney, and those are the two guys that you thought that Brandon should have taken in the in the mock draft. I did think that was funny. I thought Ezra Cleveland was a great grab there. So very good. I actually had the Lions winning the draft, and I know it's close to me, but obviously Jeff Okuda, you get him at number three. That's a slam dunk anywhere you get him. I think DeAndre Swift at the top of the second round. Again, another really good player that fits their scheme. I like Okwara. The thing that puzzled me, again, was Jonah Jackson going in the 11th pick of the third round. Basically, he's a number 15 rated guard in the draft, and he went that high. I mean, they had their pick of the litter, and I was surprised with that one. And then undrafted free agent, Hunter Bryant, the tight end, they end up getting him, signing him as an undrafted free agent. So overall, I liked what they did, other than outside the Jonah Jackson pick. Oh, man, that's my boy. Jonah Jackson? Yeah, remember? I talked about him. As he's, I think he's going to be the, the offensive lineman that comes out, and he's the star of this draft. I think he is the best technically sound guard in this draft. I had him rated, I think, as my fifth or sixth best interior offensive. Well, you take out centers, and I think I had him rated as my third or fourth best guard. I I love Jonah Jackson. His balance, his hands, I think he's an immediate starter. That was one of my favorite picks in the whole draft. I love Jonah Jackson. Yeah, guys, so uh, my recap of this division, um, my notes next to the Vikings say, much better results than the mock dot winners dot. Uh, I think these first three picks for the Minnesota Vikings, um, like you guys already mentioned, um, were just awesome picks for Minnesota. Um, Jefferson and Gladney, some of the top guys in their position, deep positions for sure, like we had mentioned in the position breakdown, but fits for this team. Um, and then Ezra Cleveland, I know he was a, a bit of a positional wonder at the Combine, um, and it was a question as to where he'd end up falling. So I think Minnesota took a, a great guy there. Um, and I, I then would have uh, the Lions second. I think Okuda is an awesome pick, and we're going to be watching him for a long, long time. And uh, Swift run, went in that clump of running backs. Like Sully predicted, you're going to see one go, and then you're going to see that run on running backs go as well, just as just as he predicted the run on offensive linemen. Um, and then the Bears, we obviously didn't see a first-round pick because of the Khalil Mack trade. And then gra- uh, drafting Cole Komet, uh, the tight end in round two. Um, I think that was your top tight end, Sully. So good pick for the Bears there. Um, can we all agree that the worst draft in this division and possibly the entire NFL is the Green Bay Packers? I mean, most definitely. It was just atrocious. I mean, to to touch on Detroit first, just a tad. I, I mean, we all agree Jeff Okuda was fantastic. The Julian Aquara story is really cool to get drafted with your brother and go play there. I think is. I mean, that's awesome. I, I mentioned Jonah Jackson. I love him. Logan Sternberg's another player who could start at guard. And then Quintez Cephas, I mentioned earlier, is somebody New England could have taken. I think he's got a real chance of being a really good slot receiver. Chicago, I really wasn't the biggest fan. I don't hate their draft. They've got 10 tight ends on their roster right now. Legitimately 10. Go look it up. There are 10 tight ends rostered on that team right now. So to take one with their first pick was a little weird. Yes, I had Komet as my number one tight end. I think he's better than probably everyone on their roster, but it's still a weird pick when you have so many other needs. 
Jalen Johnson's, I think, a plug-and-play corner. I love him. I thought he could have gone round one, so I didn't hate Chicago's draft there. Green Bay, I mean, they just, what the fuck were they doing? I don't, I, I, I honestly, it's like they were trying to bomb the draft on purpose. I didn't understand it. You guys know I like Jordan Love. I'm a big fan. That makes sense. I get it. I don't hate that pick. Uh, I don't think you can groom quarterbacks in today's league anymore, necessarily. Uh, for one, the CBA really doesn't allow it. You get such limited practice time now that you kind of have to give your reps to your first team. These second team guys don't get a ton of reps. You may get like 10 reps a day, if that. So I don't think like you can really like groom a guy the way you did in, say, Aaron Rodgers' time. And then, so it, it, it's not going to have as much weight. And then A.J. Dillon, I, I think he was my 12th or 13th ranked running back. I don't understand this pick at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. I've talked about him, praise, like a late-round guy that may succeed. But to take him in the second just is atrocious, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Josiah DeGura, I I honestly, like, he's got some sneaky athletic ability, yes. But, like, fuck, I mean, the guy's an average tight end. Like, I just don't want to come away with your first three picks and get zero contribution, zero contribution to your football team immediately for a team that was so close to the Super Bowl makes absolutely no sense to me, and you'll never be able to explain it. I just don't understand it. You could have gotten so much talent that helps your ball club, like, way, like, um, arguably – Ten times better than AJ Dillon and, and all these other guys. It just didn't make sense to me whatsoever. So I've got some quick hits on the Packers before Wayne. I let you take the floor on them. Uh, my first one is this is another team that we spoke about that didn't even think of taking a receiver when they needed receiver for Aaron Rodgers in the worst way. Um, I think you can certainly criticize New England Sully for their lack of taking one, and it's deserved. But this team needed one in the worst way, and they didn't take one throughout the entire draft. Like you mentioned, 36 receivers taken, and they take zero. Uh, the next thing that I want to mention with them is, did they think this was the year 2024? Uh, um, and then thirdly, A.J. Dillon, if you go to PFF, I don't know how you uh, really respect PFF, Sully. I don't know I love where you hold them in, in regard, but... Okay, perfect. So, do you know where AJ Dillon fell on their running back ranks? Probably out of the top one fifty. He was outside of the top two fifty. Oh. So it just makes those those picks by the Green Bay Packers more and more puzzling for a, a new quarterback like Matt Lafleur. This did not look good at all. So, Wayne, take the floor. How do you feel about Green Bay's draft? Well, I think there's only so much that you can shit on a team, and I think that everybody has emptied their bowels on the Green Bay Packers. The thing that really stood out to me outside of what you guys have said is just I had seen a, a statistic or a meme, if you will, that just you know, they said the best player on the Packers last year was Aaron Rodgers and their first round pick was a quarterback. The second best player on the Packers last year was Aaron Jones and their second pick was a running back. It just didn't make any sense. Yeah, speaking of memes, Aaron Rodgers has a total of one touchdown pass to a first round talent. One. One. The guy has never thrown more than one touchdown to a player that was drafted in the first. Like, get this guy some fucking help. Like, I just don't understand it. I, I just, I'll never understand it. And, I mean, Brett Favre came out with an interesting take today, and he said, you know, nobody thought I was on the way out, you know, when I was on the way out. And then all of a sudden Aaron Rodgers comes in, and in three years I'm out the league, or I'm out the I'm out the franchise. And, it, you know, it looks like we're, we're heading that way again. You know, I mean, it, it just looks like Aaron Rodgers is not necessarily getting pushed out the door, but, you know, when a team starts thinking about the future, you know your time's running out. 
Yeah, when we go back and we talk about the compensation about DeAndre Hopkins and the steal of a trade that was for Arizona, don't you think Aaron Rodgers would have loved Green Bay to give up their first or their second or some type of package to get a phenom like DeAndre Hopkins on that offense with him? Oh my God, he would have he would have given up two firsts. I mean, you you I, you give up thirty quicker than you could try to give up thirty to get DeAndre Hopkins. Like that that makes no like. I mean, I think the whole fucking league was blown by that one and would have traded a lot to if they would have known they could have gotten DeAndre Hopkins for a second. David Johnson, I think the whole league would have been lit on fire. Well, Sully, why don't you take us into the NFC South? All right, I will with pleasure take you to the NFC South, and not only to the team that I think won the NFC South, but I think the team that clearly won the draft, if you ask me. I think it's not even a question. It's an A+. Uh, I think with their first four picks, they got four starters, and that's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, I'm gonna, I don't care if it sounds full homerish. Tristan Wirfs was our number one rated offensive tackle. It's kind of out in the open now. We're not afraid to admit that. Uh, as I mentioned before, as soon as Andrew Thomas went, uh, and then the, you know, we called, we didn't call Miami apparently, but we called LA and every team in between LA and us to get up to the pick that was currently on the clock and no team wanted to move down. And then, uh, you know, we, even at 13, we were ready to give whatever we needed to give up to make sure we got Tristan Wirfs even one pick early. I think he's an immediate starter on the right side. And obviously with Tom Brady, that's huge. Uh, Antoine Woodfield Jr. I, I had rated as a top 30 player, you know, to get him where we did, I think is massive. I think he's an immediate starter. Uh, again, I've been bashing running backs all day, so I, I won't not bash Kashawn Vaughn. I didn't love the pick at the time. I, I you know, I, I still am not a huge fan of it. I'm not going to be in love with every single pick, but again, I think he's a starter. And and the way Tom Brady uses his running backs, you know, he he offers something that Rashad doesn't in the receiving game. And so I think Rashad Vaughn's, you know, you talk about fantasy value. He may be your sneaky James White that gets 60 catches out of nowhere. And then Tyler Johnson, I have no clue how he re- fell to the fifth round. Uh, I, I I mean, you you. I, I'm going to have to figure out how, but he's a starting wide receiver. He's immediately our third receiver, and I love that fit. I can't think of a better fit at receiver for our third receiver, honestly. And our receiving core with our tight ends now and our weapons, I mean, our team's deadly. I I think we are true Super Bowl contenders, and I loved every pick of our draft. So, Sully, can you explain to me why Winfield Jr. actually fell into round two and why he wasn't one of the corners that was taken in round one by a team that needed a corner more? Well, he's a safety. Uh, He's a pure free safety. So he's going to play pure deep coverage. Yes, he can come in and, and make tackles and read, but I think what he's best at is playing that pure deep safety playmaking role. He had seven interceptions this year at Minnesota, but he's 5'9", 5'10", I think, and that's why he fell. You know, if he's if he's – Grant Delpit's size and his tape that is, he's, he's a first round lock. I think, I think he goes to Dallas at 17, honestly. Uh, I'm a huge Antoine Winfield fan. So coming into this draft, I know that I had asked you uh, which team was the biggest competition to the Buccaneers, and you didn't even hesitate. You said it's still the, the New Orleans Saints. Uh, they drafted Cesar Ruiz, who I know you had said was a bit of a darling, who was an offensive lineman that was going to slip into the first round. Uh, they take him at 24, and then they take uh, Troutman, uh, that tight end that I think Wayne was really liking as well. They take him in round three. So I think the Saints ended up having a pretty decent draft. 
Yeah, I like the Saints draft as well, and I did like the Buccaneers draft. The thing I like about the Saints, and I'm a big fan of value, not necessarily what people turn out to be, but where you get value. And obviously, Cesar Ruiz at number 24, he's the number one rated center on the board. He goes to them. Then they get the number two overall linebacker with Zach Bond in the third round. They get the number two overall tight end in the, in the third round with Troutman. So I thought they just got exceptional value. I thought those were definitely the top two teams. Uh, I actually didn't have the Saints in one of my top two teams. Uh, yes, I, I, you know, I love Cesar Ruiz. I said he was a darling. I don't know how he fits in that team, honestly. I mean, they have Andres Pete, who they just signed to a massive deal. They have Eric McCoy, who they literally just drafted last year, who was PFF's highest-rated rookie. Uh, and then they have uh, Larry Warford, who, yeah, he's on the, he's you know just turning thirty, but I mean, he's not going to start over Larry Warford. Larry Warford's a, a very, very good guard. So I'm not really sure where she and for again I, I mentioned this for a team that's ready to win right now. I, I don't know if I love drafting a center for the future kind of thing. Uh, but Zach Bond, I think Adam Troutman, I think we're great kids. Uh, Zach Bond's going to be a situational edge rusher, and I don't think really anymore. I think they may try to use him at linebacker. I just don't know if he's going to be able to do it. And then Adam Troutman, I mean, we've talked about him at, at nauseum. I think we all love him. I think his talent levels through the roof, and he's got a really good chance of being a really good ball player. I think Carolina absolutely crushed this draft too. I'm a big fan of what Matt Rule did. You know, I love building through the trenches and to grab Derek Brown and your Turgos Matos, I think was a good get. I don't think really they're going to bring a ton of pass rushing value, but I mean, your Turgos Matos is, I think, a, a JPP comp. You know, he, he may get you seven or eight sacks, but man, the guy's going to defend the run extremely well and be a really good strong side defensive end. And then Derek Brown's probably the lowest four player not named. Chase Young, I think you know exactly what you're going to get from Derek Brown, and they immediately bring beef to that defense. You know, Jeremy Chin, I talked about, I'm a big fan of. I really like what he did uh, this year at Southern Illinois. I think in a better role, in a more versatile role, I think he could be a star. Troy Pride, the cornerback from Notre Dame, I think immediately starts in the slot for that team. And then Kenny Robinson, baby. The safety from the XFL, the first XFL player drafted, uh, coming out of West Virginia, though, if, if he plays at West Virginia and doesn't have like his off-the-field issues, boy, Kenny Robinson's a, a legit first or second-round talent. And in the fifth round, I mean, he's got a – him and, and Jeremy Chin have a chance to be like safeties of the future for that team. I, I really love what Carolina did. Yeah, for Matt Rule to take all seven of his picks and go defense, uh, it was something that we hadn't seen before. So certainly making a statement as his first draft with that team. Um, and I think that the three teams we've mentioned are the clear winners of that division. Um, I really did not like what the Falcons did for a team that really needed a cornerback. Um, they took one that I really didn't like. Uh, Sully, I'm sure you're going to have more insight on A.J. Terrell, but I didn't like him. Um, and then they went ahead and took a defensive tackle in Davidson in round two. So that's my division loser for the NFC South. Davidson was actually my favorite pick of theirs. I didn't understand the Terrell pick because there were, I thought, better corners on the board, but maybe he fits their scheme better. I mean, Sully, you'll know more about that. I really like Marlon Davidson. I think that you know he's kind of a sleeper pick. I think in to get him in the second round, I think he's going to have a really good year. He was actually my favorite pick by the Falcons. But yeah, they didn't address running back at all, They and I thought it was a reach for Terrell. Yeah, I think they were the clear loss. They were honestly one of my least favorite drafts of the whole thing, and, and what sucks is... I love A.J. Terrell. I'm a big, huge fan. I love Marlon Davidson. I'm a big, huge fan. I love Matt Hennessy. I'm a big, huge fan. I hate them all in that team. I hate them all in that scheme fit, essentially. I, I, except A.J. Terrell, I guess. 
the issue with AJ Terrell, I think, is the Falcons wanted a corner, zeroed in on a corner, and went need over value. I think CD Lamb on that team just makes so much sense to me, in my opinion. You put Calvin Ridley in the slot, then have CD Lamb outside with Julio Jones and Matt Ryan now with a team that again is maybe ready to win right now. I think that would have been a much better pick, but I think they overvalued their need at corner and went AJ Terrell, who I don't hate as a player, but I just think it was a little early. You know, you mentioned Marlon Davidson, and I've mentioned him too. I actually am a big, huge fan. I love him as a player. He's a, he's an under he's an under he's a UG tackle. You know, he's a three tech. He's a, and and that's what they have in Grady Jarrett. You know, they don't have a nose. So you go, you throw those two out with then Dante Fowler and then Dak McKin or Tack McKinney, and I mean, you have arguably the worst run defending line in all of football. I mean, they're going to get ran all over by the Bucks at that point. You know, I mean, it's just nobody brings any kind of run stopping value at that point. So I'm not really sure where they play Marlon Davidson. If they play him on the on the defensive end, you know, which he played at, at Auburn, but he beefed up during this draft process. But they play him at defensive end, and he he becomes kind of that like run stopper who then shifts inside to pass rushing downs. Maybe it works. But, but as a pure defensive tackle, I don't really love it. Matt Hennessy, I think, is a player that has the ability to start, but I don't think he's right now. And then they did get a Jared Pinckney, who, you know, everybody had as the number one tight end going into the year. And then he got fat and out of shape and looks like the slowest crap of molasses I've seen in a long time. But, I mean, if you can get him back into shape to where he was – you know, after 2018, I mean, that could be a good player. But overall, I just don't really like kind of like all the fits Atlanta had in their draft. Well, those are our NFL winners and losers. Stick around for part two of this podcast. We're going to talk about the last dance and Dennis Robin and Phil Jackson, who seem to be the center of both of those episodes. We are starting part two of this massive podcast. Obviously, everybody's stuck at home. Everybody's in quarantine and all these people talking about the Tiger King and Carol Baskins and all that stuff. But if you're a sports fan, your Tiger King is the last dance. It is on ESPN. You can't get enough of it. People are watching multiple episodes every week waiting patiently as they can for the next episode to come out. And we're about to go into episodes three and four, which... As everyone knows, covered Dennis Robin and Phil Jackson. Yeah, this uh, documentary is still as riveting as it's uh, it's sold itself to be. Uh, it's been amazing. I've been on the edge of my seat. To be honest, my mom, who could honestly, for the most part, care less about basketball, has watched every episode of this with me. She stayed up to see it, and she's enjoyed it as well. So this has been uh, an awesome time to kind of bond with her and be able to see, you know, so many bits about Robin and Phil Jackson that I never got. So really enjoying how this documentary is picking up. I've loved every episode equally. Um, and uh, Sully, what's your take on the series so far? Oh, God, it's just simply amazing. And, and you know, it's just so riveting in, in every aspect. Like you said, I mean, my girlfriend, shout out to my amazing girlfriend, by the way, who just had to deal with the draft all week and then <clears throat> the last dance on Sunday. You know, I mean, shout out. She's amazing. I appreciate her dealing with it all. But, you know, even she's watching the Dennis Rodman episode like – just, I mean, like genuinely watching and interested about what's going on. Now, granted, Dennis Rodman's a character and we'll get into that more. But yeah, I mean, the, the, just the, the overall ability of this episode to grab people who aren't, or this series, to grab people who aren't sports fans and make them watch is, I think, what's so unique about this and what makes it so great. 
Yeah, Wayne, I want to get your take, but I think what makes this 30 for 30 amongst their awesome 30 for 30 so great is they waited just the right amount of time to go ahead and get these athletes back on, these former athletes, I'm sorry, to be as candid and honest as possible about this time where I think it's it's a perfect time for us to dip back into that late 90s season and, and that dynasty. So, Wayne, what's your take on why this has been so successful? Well, it's just the back. It's a backstage look. I mean, everybody likes backstage looks. It's the same reason that they have the director's commentary on DVDs that you buy. It's the same reason they have the making of specials. There's a on Netflix right now. I think there's a show called Back in Time, which is all about the making of Back to the Future and the impact that it had on society. And people just love that stuff. They eat it up no matter what it's about. And the fact that it's about Michael Jordan, arguably the most popular athlete in the history of sports, I think that's what's driving the success. So we're going to do this chronological. We're going to start at the beginning, kind of take the Mad Hatter and the March Hare's advice on telling a story, which is start at the beginning, and when you get to the end, stop. And basically, because we're running in that order, it's kind of like the dark side of the moon when you start playing that when the Wizard of Oz starts, and it's kind of a whole mind-blowing experience. We're going to start, if you want to start watching the episode with Mute, and you can listen to our rundown. It's going to go right in order of the show. And I start things off opening up Dennis Robbins lifting weights. And the first thing I notice is his just colorful hair. That was something that was really big with him with the Bulls, kind of with the Spurs is where he started it all. And my favorite hairdo I just wanted to throw out there was the black with the neon green in it. I'm going to go ahead and be boring and say my favorite Dennis Robbins hairstyle is his Detroit Pistons hairstyle. I really didn't love um, his wacky um, character, um, the way he um, had the the hairstyle and earrings when he got to uh, San Antonio and then um, much crazier in Chicago. Um, His bad boy's hairstyle and his demeanor um, was much more my preference. But Sully, I'm sure you have a crazy hairstyle that you liked. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it had to be those 33s when, when Pippen came back. I mean, that shit was so dope. I mean, but I, I like the uh, the leopard print, too, if I'm, if I'm not going to lie. I mean, the leopard print was kind of my favorite. That's where I'd go if I was him. Uh, I, I, th- I thought, you know, that was kind of his trademark. You know, I'm glad, you know, that's the kind of the first point you brought up. I mean, that was the first thing my, my, my girlfriend said was, damn, his hair looks crazy. And I just thought it was kind of funny. I mean, that, that's a great point. I think uh, the next thing we heard Rodman say in the documentary was, you know, would the Chicago Bulls have won that second three-peat without me being on that team? And he said, I don't think they do. So I pose it to you guys. If Dennis Rodman isn't on that team, do they have what it takes to three-peat again with a bit of a, a evolved NBA from that first dynasty? No. No, I don't think they do. I mean, they'll win championships. They might win two, but the reality is they had to go through the Orlando Magic to get to the finals. Dennis Rodman did such a great job on Shaquille O'Neal, and he is such a great defender, and he brought so much to the team and his unselfishness. I know he's a selfish person as a human being, but his unselfishness to just go out and rebound and play defense at 100 miles per hour up until the buzzer sounds is really, I thought, a driving force in that team. And especially when you look at that last season, the one they're talking about now, where Scotty's out, Rodman was so important to that team. I mean, they started off, what, 7-8 and eight or 8-7? Eight and seven. They might have been 4-11 and 11 or something like that without Dennis Rodman there as the number two to Jordan. 
Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I don't think they win without him either. And <clears throat> You know, we've spoken about this a lot and what it takes to win championships as, as a team. And, you know, just one great player isn't going to win a championship, even if you're Michael Jordan. You know, so you need help to win. It doesn't matter how great you are. And, and you know, you need somebody to get those boards and to play that defense and, and be that guy that does all the dirty work. And, you know, I, I personally emulated Dennis Rodman games so much. And, you know, you speak about his relentless defense. And, I mean, David Aldridge says he's the best defender he's seen in 30 years I mean David Aldridge is an NBA head that's been around forever I think everybody respects his opinion and I mean for 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 that comment to come out I think is massive I mean his on-ball tenacity was just you couldn't find it anywhere else he just never lost his ferociousness in front of you it was crazy uh, he was such an incredible player to watch and all the little things is what made that team great I think so Another thing I love about this documentary is the way that it's taking us back and, and really giving us a life story of these players or these profiles, but also focusing on, on that season. And, you know, we got a little bit of Rodman introducing us into this episode, and then we see him in that season, that 97-98 season, and we see an exchange on the court with a ref. And, and it seems like at that point, we already see that Rodman's reputation is built in. The ref doesn't give a shit what he sees. He, he sees Rodman do it, and he's going to call him for it. So to me, that was, you know, a bit of a, a sneak peek where you get to hear an audio bit of a ref just really giving it to Rodman and showing men, I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt anytime soon. You've dug, you've dug yourself a hole with your career at this point. So I thought that was a nice little sneak peek there. And I think it is a testament, too, to what Aldridge said about him being the best defender that he's seen in 30 years. The fact that the referees are watching you so close, and they are going to call the closest ticky-tack foul on you if they see it. And the fact that he was still able to D up guys, and not just D up like big men. First of all, in that time frame, if you guys remember, and I don't know if you do, but Shaquille O'Neal was an automatic double team. Every team that played against Shaquille O'Neal, it was a double team. You double team from the top. That's it. There was no question about it. And when the Chicago Bulls would play against Shaquille O'Neal, it was a single team. Rodman, no double team came to help out. And he, I mean, Shaq would still get 30 and 15, but God damn, did he give Shaq fits. And the, to be able to do that while the refs are watching you so close and to be able to contain maybe the most dominant center of our lifetime it was just amazing. You know, we talk about Jordan being one of the best defensive guards of all time and then Pippen and his defensive accolades and now Rodman with us and then a legend in Aldridge saying that he is the best defender he's seen. I think when you consider that second three-peat and the defensive mindset they had to have had under Phil Jackson, um, it, it was just, it's great to think how awesome that team was. Three players out of that starting five had just all world defenders on it. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it, you know, a testament to Jerry Krause and his actually team building skills. I know he wasn't a big fan of, of, you know, Dennis Rodman, but still nonetheless, his ability to be able to bring that kind of, you know, talent in and build around him is just fantastic. And I thought that when they talked about, you know, Dennis is kind of dogging it a little bit and he goes up to Michael Jordan's room and just after getting thrown out of the game, just goes up to Jordan's room and says, hey man, you got a, you got a cigar? And they just sit there and they smoke cigars together. Never actually said I'm sorry, but Jordan was kind of like, I know that's what he meant. He was coming up to apologize, and that's just how Dennis apologizes. And I thought that was so great because I do know people like that, that they apologize in their own way. You know they're apologizing even without them saying it. 
Well, especially guys in the court. I mean, we all play sports uh, or have played um, in different aspects of our life. And I think, you know, Wayne, you and I specifically, we've played basketball together. We've played them with other people in our lives. And we know that there can be that nonverbal communication of either, yo, what the hell are you doing? Or, yo, you, you nice move. You got that. So I think nonverbal in basketball is something that we see. And it doesn't just have to happen on the court. We saw in that instance where Robin didn't need to say sorry, but George knew what was happening yeah most definitely i mean i think it's more of a respect thing and just you know kind of what it takes to just show up to a man and just face him man to man and just right to his face and again you don't necessarily have to come out and say those words to convey you know exactly what you mean and you know they mentioned that from that point on you know it, it turned into kind of you know rodman and jordan show and and Phil Jackson mentions, you know, Dennis Rodman is what hold what held this team together when Scotty was out. And I thought that was kind of a big point. I mean, everybody talks about Scotty and Michael, Scotty and Michael, Scotty and Michael. I really do think Dennis Rodman's kind of almost a forgotten piece of this, you know, championship team. Because a lot of people don't realize Scotty was out for so long. People just kind of forget that. And if he's out for as long as he is and, and Michael doesn't have Dennis, I don't know if this team actually like has the ability to win a ton of games. You know, So I think he was very, very vital to that team in that championship. Now they do the little throwback or the, the, the whatever it is with the little timeline. It goes back in time. And they talk about Dennis kind of getting thrown out of the house at age 18. He was homeless for two years. You know, he mentions that I could have been a drug dealer. I kept watching these guys deal drugs, and I thought I could do that, but I never did. And he ends up just kind of playing street ball, and, and somebody sees him play, and they tell these guys at Southeast Oklahoma State, some nowhere college, and say, hey, you got to come check out this guy, Dennis Rodman. He checks him out. They say, you know what? We want to offer you a scholarship to come play here. And he moves out to, you know, Southeast Oklahoma, and he plays for Southeast Oklahoma State. He's a great player there. The episode didn't really go into his relationship with the family that he stayed with out there, but there was a family that he stayed with that he became very, very, very close with the kid in that family. That He was, like, best friends with this kid that was being raised by the family. And I think that led later on, Dennis had a very strong affinity for helping kids. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the flashbacks, Sully, what do you think of Dennis Rodman as a kid? Bro, he is hands down the ugliest human being alive. Is he not? I mean, his big-ass ears, they stuck out like six inches from his head, and his big-ass mouth, that man, especially his, like, teenage photo. Like I said, again, you know, I'm watching with my lady, bro. We both were like, ugh, like, almost taken back by how ugly he was. Uh, I mean, to his testament for, for being homeless and, and, you know, doing what he did, you know, you big ups, obviously, you know, uh, I mean, he was such an incredible player there at, at Southeast Oklahoma State that, you know, I mean, granted, it's Southeast Oklahoma State, so, you know, how great can it be? But, I mean, you really forget, you know, how kind of, like, good he was. You know, you don't get to see a lot of it, obviously. So, and to do what he did when, when he could have easily been a drug dealer or something like that is really cool to see. Now, Wayne, at Southeast Oklahoma State, what was this dude putting up for stats? So in the episode, he says, I averaged 27 and 15 there, and I thought, I'm going to double-check that. Like, I wonder if it was one of those LeVar Ball things where in his mind he was a lot better than he was. But I looked it up, and it's, like, legit. He legit averaged 27 and 15. His junior year, he averaged 27 and 16. That's incredible, no matter where you're playing. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Like, you almost forget, like, how, like I didn't know those stats were true. Like, you almost forget just how good he really was, you know, coming out. 
Well, the episode uh, kind of then leads into the fact that when he gets to the Pistons, he starts inviting friends and teammates to stay after practice or to show up at the gym when there's no one there. And all he wants to do is watch them shoot jumpers and throw the ball back to him just so he can study the spin of the ball and the arc of the ball and how it bounces off the rim and what direction it goes and just became a super, super PhD of rebounding. Yeah, I remember being a kid and Wayne used to have me go to the course just so I could brick shots for him. He knew I was good to uh, miss plenty of shots and give him rebound opportunities. So uh, this brought back memories watching this. No, I mean, you talk about memories. I like legitimately I used to do this. Like I used to have people come out and we would shoot and I would just figure out where the ball was going to go and what angle and how it was because I, I, I wasn't a good shooter. I'm still not a good shooter. Like I'm not a good scorer. So what I would do to be able to play with my friends and play basketball was make sure I was good at defense and I could rebound the shit out of the ball. And I became a really good rebounder. So he's talks about this and I know exactly what he's talking about. And it's crazy that like an NBA player is actually doing that same stuff. And I mean, it, it really does work. You really do find out where it, I mean, he, he goes way depth into it. And Keith starts talking about when magic goes, there's going to be a spin and the ball is going to come off this way. And they blur it all together. But I mean, if you really listen to him, I mean, that boy was, I mean, that was in depth. That boy was smart. Like he was going really, and, and you can see it, why and how he was getting the rebounds he was. I mean, you know, what did Chuck Daly call him, Wayne? A dream player. He's the dream player to have on a team. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And I mean, Chuck Daly's a legend. I mean, you know, we mentioned it before, we'll mention it ad nauseum, I'm sure. You know, Dennis Rodman did all the dirty work that your stars aren't going to do, you know, and, and that kind of stuff is huge for a ball club. Now, the Pistons become the bad boys with Lambert, Mahorn, Rodman, Dumars, Isaiah, John Sally. And I know Rodman said when he was in college, he never played like that. He'd play 100 miles an hour, but he never played like that. But when he got there, the guys just told him, like, hey, we're just going to clothesline guys. And he was like, all right, I'm down. I mean, it obviously worked out for them, and he seemed to uh, really take his mental uh, acumen um, that helped him become a great rebounder and added some some grit and some grind to it. So that team is known as being the bad boys, you know, the dirty uh, bad boy Pistons. Uh, you know, I'm obviously a Pistons fan, so uh, this was great for me to see a sneak peek of how uh, just how physical that team was against the goats of that era. So, uh, yeah, to see him kind of get adopted into that team and really start to grow into a more physical player, a dirtier player. Um, that was nice to see for sure. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, I'm not a big fan of the, the bad boy Pistons. And the more I watch this documentary now, I granted they're going to be painted as a villain, but man, I just fucking, I hated it. Like, I, I don't know. Like it, it was backyard thug basketball, which I mean, I get it's got its place, like blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. In the NBA, when you're going out trying to intentionally hurt guys, like guys are midair and they're hitting them. Like even in the, even in the, like the playground, like you do that kind of shit. That's dirty, man. I just didn't, I don't know. I thought that was cheap and I thought it's like disgraceful. And, and I, it, I wasn't really a big fan of it at all. And I not, like the more I see of it, the more respect or the less respect I have for guys like that, to be honest with you. They show the highlight of Bill Lambert, like clotheslining Larry Bird and basically like folding him in half. But the thing they didn't show is that I think it was like the next play down or two or three plays down, whatever it was, Lambert's looking up at the ball, waiting for a rebound to come down, and Robert Parrish just throws a haymaker right into his face. Is that why Lambert's wearing the face mask? It could be, but yeah, I mean, he hit him hard, and Lambert didn't even see it coming. I mean, to be fair, they show a clip where Lambert 
fucking rocks some dude with a big ass right. And I mean, so good. I mean, Lambert deserved it. I don't know. I like that clothesline, like that dirty ass shit. Like, I don't know. Like, how does it, I, like, you could attest more because you're the old guy in this thing here, Wayne, but like, how does something like that, like, how does he not get thrown out? Like, how are the rules that retarded in the NBA that you could literally just beat somebody up and it was legal? That makes no fucking sense to me. It's changed tremendously to the point, I mean, nowadays, I mean, forget clotheslining and punching, which will get, I mean, that'll get you a season-long suspension. I mean, some of their fouls that they were talking about, I mean, Rodman mentioned, like, you wouldn't even get a technical. Like, you guys would get into a tussle, people would start throwing punches, the refs would separate you, just like in football, and say, all right, you know, get back to it. Like, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, exactly like you said, they'd be tech- if you watch that highlight clip, they'd, they'd get, like, especially we'll get later into it, in the series that they actually play, they get kicked out of 90% of those games or because of those fouls. I just don't understand. Like, and I get today's game is, I mean, you, you breathe on a guy now and, and you get a foul. And I think it's a little too much and there needs to be a happy medium, but I don't know, just going back and watching that. I just don't really, I don't know. I don't like watching that. It does. It's not appealing to me to see a guy get cheap shotted over and over and nothing gets done about it. You're not I, supposed I, to I, like I the villain. Yeah, but again, like uh, it's it. Uh, you don't have to be a villain. Like you, like I don't know. Like the cheap shots, you're okay with that shit. Like that doesn't bother you. I, I don't like cheap shots. You know, just out of the blue. So I, I'll, I'll be honest. It's one of the worst plays that I probably was a part of in a basketball league is we were playing a team that was beating us. I mean, tremendously beating us, and they were chirping at us the whole game. And we we didn't talk trash. It wasn't like the teams I've always played on. I've always just been like, you go out there and you play. And these guys were just yapping at us the whole game, and they were beating us by like 24, so whatever, good for them. And we started yelling at each other, and I heard one of their guys on their team say, yeah, they're yelling at each other, look, I wouldn't want to be down 24 points either. And so I picked out that kid, and the next time it was a fast break, he went up for a layup, and I literally, I'm not even joking, I literally threw my forearm into his mouth as hard as I could when he went up, and... And it was so great. It felt so good. I only got called for a foul. It wasn't even a flagrant. I just got called for a foul. <laughs> um, I, I, well, I made, I made it look like I was trying to block the shot with my left hand, but I was totally just throwing a forearm with my right into his face. Um, and so I understand that. Like, don't run your mouth. Just shut the fuck up, you know? So I understand those types of fouls. But just to hit a guy in the face because he's driving the lane, I don't agree with that. I mean, we saw Lim Beer elbow Scottie Pippen, and Scottie Pippen have to be dragged off the court by a ref so the ref could continue to do his damn job. I mean, the refs didn't give a shit about how physical stuff was getting, especially right then and there. I mean, unless they were in the line of fire of an elbow or a knee, there was a lot of physicality in the, the, those 80s uh, and uh, early 90s bouts between NBA teams. So 86-87, Krause hires Doug Collins, very player-friendly coach, and I thought it was funny they told the story where he said that, you know, Michael Jordan, they're playing the Knicks, and he said to him, he's like, Coach, I'm not going to let you lose your first game. He goes out and drops 50, which was a record at the time. Yeah, I think it's amazing when a player can give a coach that type of confidence, that type of reassurance, um, and it proves to a coach, I've got a difference maker on the floor right now. So obviously huge for them to have that connection, and I think what strengthened their connection, specifically talking about Collins and Michael Jordan, is they both shared an amazing competitive drive. Um, they talked about some of the practice bits where, you know, Collins would drive Jordan nuts because he would stack the teams against him or he would switch teams, you know, as it was getting close just to piss Jordan off. So the fact that they were so competitive, I really think that helped those two thrive and become close and really build that awesome chemistry that they needed to succeed. I mean, we saw Collins actually get to the Eastern Conference Finals with the Bulls. 
Yeah, I mean, most definitely. I, I mean, I think they just really worked very well together. I think they got along. I think, you know, they mentioned that, you know, Collins realized what he had and he kind of designed a system that made Jordan thrive. And, you know, that's kind of what you need with a coach, you know, except find out what you've got in your team and, and make them excel. And if what you got is Michael Jordan, boy, you're going to be all right. So, you know, I think he realized that early and, and you know, they, they did a really good job of, of making sure MJ won a lot of things. Yeah, Collins was the head coach of the Bulls for three years with Michael Jordan. And in that three-year span, we see Jordan win Defensive Player of the Year. We see him lead the league in scoring. We see him win MVP. We see him actually win the slam dunk championship. So, you know, he competes at the highest level and and wins at, at the highest level in all these different things under Doug Collins. So I think it was awesome, an awesome three years for those two. Yeah, I'm curious how much of that Doug Collins really had an effect on. I mean, Jordan led the league in scoring before Collins got there. He led the league in scoring after Collins was gone. It's just what he did. He was maybe the greatest scorer of all time outside of Wilt Chamberlain. So, But the thing that really blew my mind is getting him to win Defensive Player of the Year in 1988. I think in 88 he wins Defensive Player of the Year, MVP, scoring title, All-Star MVP. Yeah, I mean, that's an insane list of accomplishments right there. That's a year for the record books, and that's why he is the GOAT. So they go to a commercial break at this point in the show. I, I actually noted it in my notes, commercial break. 20 minutes in, I was actually shocked that they waited 20 minutes for the first commercial. Um, and then they get right into the uh, the Cavs and the, uh, the Craig Elo. I was actually really surprised to hear that the Cavs had beaten the Bulls in that season series, six games to none. I mean, I think of the Cavs before LeBron James as a laughingstock. I think the only image I have in my head of the Cleveland Cavaliers prior to LeBron James becoming a draft pick of theirs is Craig Gilo having that shot, you know, taken on him. So to hear of how they were actually a very competitive team, a team that made it to the playoffs, competed in the playoffs and really kicked the Bulls ass in that, that season. I was shocked. Yeah. I mean, everybody had the Bulls just, I mean, had the Bulls as a, as a clear underdog in that series and had the Cavs as the favorite. I mean, so that was pretty interesting. And, you know, MJ, you know, and the Bulls took him to the, took him to the rails and, you know, in game four, when, when MJ, you know, misses that free throw, if they don't end up winning that series and they, you know, because that was the game that if he makes that free throw, you know, they probably go on to win that game and win the series. And, you know, there's not the uh, the game five that they need where he meets that heroic shot. I mean, it's probably a much bigger deal. But, I mean, MJ, you know, comes in and bangs that shot over Elo and, you know, the rest is history. I mean, you know, everybody knows what happened. I thought it was cool to see Ron Harper, who I mentioned last episode as being the steal signing by Jerry Krause because the guy averaged 20 points per game up until he went to the Bulls. And then when he got to the Bulls, he said, no, you're a defensive specialist now. You're just going to guard the best player on the other team. And Ron Harper was a phenomenal defensive player uh, one-on-one. So to see that he was the guy saying, hey, I'll take Mike. And they're like, no, no, we're going to put Elo on Mike, which no knock on Elo because I know that he gets crapped on for Jordan hitting that shot. He played really good defense on that shot. And Jordan had a double clutch in the air to get it to go in. Yeah, I, I think, again, to bring up the uh, tenacity of uh, Ron Harper um, and the uh, absolute honesty of this documentary, um, you know, he was pissed that he wasn't defending Michael Jordan on the play. I mean, you saw him during his one-on-one interview. I mean, he was swearing up a storm as to why he wasn't defending Michael Jordan in that opportunity. So to get everybody's just brutal honesty in this documentary is what's, what's raising it above the bar for sure. I mean, to be fair, the best part about the past and what ifs is you can always assume you were going to do something better than what Elo had done. You know, so to be fair, I mean, I think Michael Jordan hits the shot over Ron Harper anyway. So, you know, but 
you you attest that Elo played great defense, and I did. I mean, Michael Jordan almost hovers in midair. It's crazy when you watch that, and he just stays. You know, Elo gets there and his, his hands there, and then he goes down and past, and MJ just stays up in the air. It's it's so incredible to watch, and you know, I, you know, Doug Collins' just quote about everybody get out of the way and get Michael the fucking ball. Like, you know, th- that's that's such a cool quote, and it's such a real quote. You know what I mean? That that that's MJ in a nutshell. And it's a real testament to his jump shot in general, and I think we might have talked about it last episode, but. Everyone talks about Jordan's dunking ability and his ability to jump, which he could, but you really see that evidence. If you watch old still shots of Michael Jordan shooting jump shots, his waist is at people's face. Yeah, he's a wonderful scorer. No, his jump shot ability, I think, is... His jump shot ability, I think, is the most underrated aspect of not just his game, but I think everybody's game. Exactly what you said. Everybody says MJ's a dunker, blah, 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 this and that. They show all these highlights, you know, him switching midair, you know, with his hands. His jump shot... and his contested jump shot is what made him a 30 point score average. That guy could hit a jumper anywhere, any day. Doesn't matter who was on. Yeah. Go back and watch his finals against the trailblazers where I believe it was in the first half. He ends up hitting five or six, three pointers. Yeah. It was like six in a row or something. It was like six out of seven. He was on fire that night. Yeah. The shrug game. He's shrugging off cliff Robinson. Uh, I think, you know, we're going to continue to talk about how the uh, Pistons are going against the Bulls and matching up um, when uh, Robin was part of that bad boy Piston team. And uh, it was important for the Pistons to knock off MJ and the Bulls because they didn't want, you know, MJ to take that place on the mantle yet. So I thought that that was important for them to say, you know, we knew that people wanted MJ. They saw MJ and the Bulls as this next team, and we wanted to stop that. We wanted to slow that down. What I liked about that is it's definitely, you still hear it today. I mean, you heard, oh, the league wanted Shaq and Kobe to win those championships, so it was fixed that way. And based on what, you know, was it Tim Donahue or whatever it is saying, maybe it was, but, you know, and nowadays it's LeBron James. Everyone's like, oh, the league wants LeBron James to go to the finals. So it's funny that even back then, same thing, the players just like, oh, yeah, the league really wants this. And maybe it's just themselves psyching themselves into, like, an underdog role. Yeah, I mean, I... I... If if one league's going to be fixed, it may be the NBA, and you know there's going to be a ton of conspiracy theories that say every league's fixed and blah blah blah. But you know I don't know. Ignorance is bliss at this point. I'll, I'll believe that every, nothing's fixed, and you know and, and until it's proven, and, and I'll enjoy the the shit out of the game. So you know I'm never going to believe that a league. Obviously, they want their star to do well, but I mean it, it also makes sense that they win a lot because they're so good. Like let's be real here. Like you know so. Wayne, Sully refers to you as the resident old guy on the podcast. So I want to get your take on one guy specifically. I think, you know, we can list four or five guys on that bad boy Pistons team. And the, the one guy I'm not thinking of is John Sally. Is this guy like the the Mercury Morris of that bad boy team? He's the one that talks the most, but probably did the least. I don't think so. I think if you know John Sally and his personality, he's kind of a comedian anyways. He's kind of a guy that jokes around a lot. So I don't think he's one of those guys like holding on to the past and holding grudges. I think he just likes to, you know, talk shit to be funny and, you know, now he's into acting or whatever. I remember seeing him in Bad Boys as like the guy with the thick glasses and like the hacker guy. Um, But I just think, yeah, when you hear him in interviews and whatnot, he's never really somebody who you would take super serious. He's just always kind of clowning around. I did think it was interesting. They had the the Jordan rules. I remember they came out with the book, The Jordan Rules, which really painted Michael Jordan in a bad light. But the Jordan rules specifically as they related to the Pistons and how to treat Michael Jordan, 
kind of boring in the first three. They're like, all right, if he's on the wing, push him to the elbow. Don't let him go baseline. Make him go left. I mean, all that stuff's kind of boring. When you get to rules four and five, which is basically do not let him get up in the air. And as soon as he gets in the paint, put him on the floor. I thought those were incredible to hear coaches say, yeah, those were our rules for Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean, rule four and five were the only ones that really matter. And I think those are the only ones that really they lived by. Yeah, I mean, again, it's kind of just a test to the point that I said before. They were just goons who were just beating people up, man. I mean, like, to not even let – like, don't let him get airborne. If he gets in the paint, put him on the floor. Like, I mean, like, that's just – like, you're genu- you're genuinely telling your guys, hey, take cheap shots, which I get was works and fit the rules and was un- a part of the game, and I understand that. And, you know, I'm not knocking their greatness or what they did. I understand it was a great team. I just think, you know, like it's just a little too over the top for me to kind of enjoy it. But I think it was a real crazy take for them to openly admit it that, yeah, that's what we're doing. And, you know, speaking like the NFL take, you know, Greg Williams who told his guys, Hey, you get that guy out. I'll give you, you know, $10,000. Well, it's like, well, shit, that's kind of what football is anyway. So like, you know, it's, it's crazy to hear that. I did like that. John Sally says, how bad do you want it? And, that's something that I think echoes over the whole series in Jordan's career, which is how bad do you want it? Because we're going to keep beating you up, and we're going to keep beating your team every year and make you either quit or you know, how bad do you want it? How bad are you willing to fight for it? And I think that that kind of mentality of how bad do you want it, Michael, is what pushed him to say, you know how bad I want it? To win six out of eight years, and the two years I don't win it, I'm just not playing. Yeah, I think the the second part of that quote honestly resonates more, where he says, how bad do you want it? Do you want to get injured, or do you want to make a shot? And, like, he's literally, it's not just how bad do you want the series, how bad do you want this game. It's how bad do you want that one shot, because we're going to hurt you every single time. And, And I think that is, like... Like you said, I think that points even more because it's not just how hard do you want to win to win this series. No, it's how hard do you want to win to make every single solitary basket because we're going to try to punish you. Coming out of the commercial break, Carmelo Anthony, they get these other players to talk about they're remembering the Bulls. And Carmelo Anthony saying that he remembered Dennis Rodman, you know, about win number 72 to go 72 and 10 and saying, I didn't even want to play this game. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. I think that's the absolute disrespect that, you know, Carmelo, you know, appreciates. He goes, man, look at look at how cold Robin was to the team that they played in that last game of the season that he didn't even want to show up. He didn't want to play because it didn't mean a damn thing. You know, to be fair, too, that was, a, I think, a point in Rodman's career where he was kind of, you know, done with basketball in a sense and more worried about his things after basketball and doing more movies with Jean-Claude Van Damme, maybe, or, uh, you know, getting his next shade of lipstick or, you know, his ears pierced or so, just, you know, just other things. And so I don't think, you know, a 72nd game really meant much to him, to be honest with you. Well, it was his first year with the Bulls, and they did break the record, which was 69. They won 70. So in a way, I understood what he was saying. Like, all right, we already broke the record. Like, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, the 72, 70, we already broke it. doesn't matter. Secondly, it's a regular season game. Like, who gives a crap? It's the end of the regular season. This isn't the playoffs. This isn't the championship. Those are the games that matter. So that's how I kind of took it was like, one, we broke the record. Two, this isn't the playoffs. So really, why are our starters playing? No, yeah, I mean, I get that take, and, and it, it truly does make sense. You know, again, it's more just about, you know, how keyed in are you to a team. Like, I know, I think all three of us personally, you know, I think we can all attest that I don't care what game it is. I don't care if it's a regular season or not. I, you know, I'm going to play, and I'm going to try to win. You know, I mean, that's how personally I feel about the game of basketball, about any game that I try to play, really. So, you know, I, 
you know, I just can't really agree to not wanting to play a game not being a big deal. Now, the thing that it gets really dark is they get into the 1993 year where Dennis Rodman takes his rifle with him and goes and sits in the parking lot, the Pistons Arena, and he actually comes out and says in the in the show, he says, I'm lucky the cops came and get me. I was lost. And I thought that was like mind-blowing. I had no idea that Dennis Rodman was actually committing suicide right around that time frame. Yeah, I think we can all see this guy as eccentric and crazy um, between his clothing choices and hairstyle choices. Um, but there's certainly stuff going on in between his ears that um, he needed help with. And I'm glad that um, the cops and uh, the team were able to uh, support him at a time where he needed that support for sure. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, like you mentioned, Wayne, I mean, it got dark real fast and it, it real fast. And, um, you know, I, again, I had no I had no clue that, you know, that kind of happened in Dennis's, you know, life really and that he was that, you know, kind of broken up about things apparently. But I mean, when you look at it, back at it, it was probably the best thing for him. You know, he got traded to the Spurs after that. You know, he started dating Madonna. He really kind of came out as a person and became who Dennis Rodman was. And granted, he may have been crazy and eccentric and all these things, but I bet you coming out and becoming that person really saved his life, honestly. And I never really thought about that, you know, because why would you think about Dennis Rodman and why he was the way he was? You know, but when you think about how, you know, damn near almost a year before that he had a gun in a truck and was ready to kill himself and then he gets traded out of a spot you know becomes this new person and and all of a sudden he's a happy individual or what we perceive to be as happy i mean maybe it really did save his life and i thought madonna was great for him in the sense telling him like listen you know just be you you know, don't try to please everybody don't try to be what everyone wants you to be you want to dye your hair purple dye your hair purple you want to get a bunch of tattoos and lip rings do that you want to wear a wedding dress like you be you and don't worry about anybody else and i think that she was so good for him in that sense because it did allow him to kind of open up and be who he really wanted to be yeah i mean support comes in all type of places and for dennis rodman's best support system at that time to come from madonna um, it was something that he absolutely needed and um, just an awesome individual to have as part of his life. Someone who, like you said, Wayne, really allowed him to be an individual and who he wanted to be. Seemed like he was really struggling with who he wanted to be growing up. Now, it was a headache. and I know that memory of him wearing his towel over his head on the sidelines, taking his shoes off and just sitting there in his socks and just kind of being a pain in the ass. And when it comes up that, you know, he could have been traded before he went to the Spurs, that the Pistons had talked to the Bulls and Jerry Krause said, I don't want anything to do with that guy. And that they would actually eventually go and get him. And that, that first meeting at Krause's place where uh, Phil meets Dennis and Dennis doesn't want to shake his hand or stand up. And he's just kind of being a dick. And they're like, well, what do you think about playing for the Bulls with Jordan and Pippen? He's like, yeah, whatever, man. Yeah, he's very nonchalant about it. He doesn't seem uh, like uh, he's really blown away with the opportunity or like he's taking it super serious. So um, it was uh, very nice to get the retrospect of that first meeting between the legendary Phil Jackson and the legendary Dennis Rodman to find out how they both handled themselves in that situation. Um, The fact that Rodman was a true Rodman, you know, he was who he was. You know, he didn't um, impress um, Phil Jackson at all. So... Um, it was nice to get that piece for sure. Yeah, it was definitely no real shock there. I mean, you know, it's not surprising that Kraus really didn't kind of like him, and it's really not surprising that he went and got him anyway, you know, because I think he understands it's what's better for the team, you know. And then, you know, Phil, we'll talk about this, I think, you know, a little, uh, and we did talk about it, but, 
you know, he's got a great ability to kind of figure out what you like and, and being that guy. And I think he did that with Rodman and, and was able to kind of bring him around and, and, and bring him into what Chicago was thinking and wanted. Jordan had the quote in there as well that Rodman was one of the smartest players he ever played with. And I know we touched on it earlier in the recap of this episode, just the studying of the shots and whatnot. But I thought just great praise from Michael Jordan, kind of like, you know, whatever we throw at this guy, he's going to get it. Like he understands the game of basketball. He's incredibly smart basketball IQ wise. Yeah, again, praising Dennis Rodman's uh, mental capacity, the fact that it's not just physical ability that will make you one of the most tenacious defensive players of all time and one of the greatest rebounders of all time. It's the time you put into watching and studying the game. And so, uh, again, to see Michael Jordan give Scotty his due in the episode prior and then in this episode – just one of the highest uh, things you can say about uh, a player and what he says about Rodman, it's it's great to see coming from the GOAT. Yeah, most definitely. I think, you know, you can tell they, they had an immediate respect for him. I mean, they, they played against him, you know, so, you know, you mentioned how Dennis said he wasn't, he wasn't really excited. How you excited to play with, with Michael and Scotty. And it's like, well, these guys have been my enemy for so long that I don't know if I could technically be excited to play with them, but obviously the respect is there. And, you know, Jordan knows that, you know, what, what Rodman is and how smart he was and things like that. And then, you know, also, you know, the ability to recognize him into the team and Pippen saying, Hey, look, man, it doesn't matter what we used to do or how we were, you know, you do your job and we're going to love you. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're going to love you on this team as long as you do your job and compete. And, you know, I think that's a testament to these, these gentlemen's leadership and things like that. Uh, going into the next commercial, they actually do like the little trivia. And I thought that it was funny. They had Dennis Robin had seven games in his career with uh, zero points and 20 rebounds. Marcus Camby had two. He's in second place. And I thought, what a great statistic. Because to rebound requires so much effort. And to think that you're putting in all that effort to grab every missed shot, but you don't care about taking one yourself. Yeah, I saw this trivia question come up, and uh, are you guys going to be shocked when my guess was actually Ben Wallace and not Marcus Camby? I thought that Ben Wallace would have had uh, the opportunity to grab a few 20-rebound games, and we know he's not known for his offensive prowess. So um, they didn't really give me a lot of time to guess. Um, Of course, it was Marcus Camby with the two games, but I thought it was actually Ben Wallace. So I'm actually really glad you brought that up, Jesse. If I have one gripe about this show is that they don't give you enough time with the trivia. They should ask the trivia question, go to their commercial, and then come back with the answer. So ESPN, listen, get your shit right. That's what you should do. Um, I, I think it's a crazy stat because, like you said, I'd love to know how many of those rebounds were offensive rebounds to where you're, like, literally right there at a chance to just put it back up most of the time. Like, you know, like I said, like, I wasn't a scorer. I'd still get, like, you know, 10 points a game because I'd get, you know, 10 rebounds. And so eventually I'm going to be there in a spot to just put the ball right back up. And so you would think if you get 20 boards, you'll be there. So I, I agree. I thought that was such a crazy number. Oh, yeah. How do you not even fall into one bucket? Yeah. The statistic I'd be curious to see is, all right, that's zero points, 20 rebounds. How many games in his career did Dennis Robin have under 10 points and 20 rebounds? And I bet you it's over 100 games. Oh, probably. Easy. Easy. Uh, January 1998, the Chicago Bulls are 24 and 11, which I thought was crazy when they brought that up because I'm like, oh, they just said like five minutes ago they started off eight and seven. So they went 16 and four in a little bit of a stretch there uh, right before Pippen came back. Yeah, like we had mentioned, you know, Jordan and and Rodman kind of 
created this bond and, and they just really took over and, and Phil mentioned it, you know, if Jordan, if Rodman wasn't on this team, I don't know what we would have done, you know? And, and I mean, I think that's really huge. I mean, that team made such a giant jump in 20 games to go 16 and four, you know, after the rough, rough start of the beginning of the season and kind of find their own and who they were, I think is a really good, you know, I mean, it was like a really needed jump for the team at that point. I thought it was funny to go into you know the speculation about him coming back the following season and every question, everywhere he goes, every arena, every sports guy from every paper is just like, you know, is this your last year? Are you coming back? What about next year? What's going to happen? And I always wondered, you know, what if Jordan just said, you know what, I'm not coming back next year or I am coming back next year, whatever it is. He answers a question, would it just get like dead silent in the locker room and they all look at each other like, I don't know what to ask now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they were certainly just there to be a distraction. I know they're there for a story, but he was pissed off about every time he had to answer that. And I mean, you know, we we talked about it earlier in the documentary that this guy just really wanted the opportunity to focus on defending their championship and focusing on, you know, building this team up and having their their chance to defend. And you can't do that when after every game, I mean, in the All-Star weekend, that's when he's getting hammered with with questions. And so it just seems ridiculous that this guy and this team can't play to their full potential when they're having to deal with media distractions. But we know we're not new to media distractions. It's it seems all but normal in sports now with, you know, Twitter and, you know, the amount of uh, times we see athletes with cameras in their faces. Yeah, I always wondered that about media. You know what, I get it. I get everybody's got a boss and everybody's got a job to do and they probably tell them, get this fucking answer, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, there's all these people surrounding them. They ask all these questions and every media guy asks the same question just in a different form. And like, you really think he's going to, you're going to be the guy that he changes his answer to and all of a sudden gives a different answer. Like it never made sense to me. I'll never understand it. I think it's the dumbest shit ever. I mean, I get having to ask it once say, Hey Mike, you coming back? Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm going to play out the season, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, the very next guy asked, so Michael, we're not sure if you're coming back. Like, it's like, come the fuck on. Like, are we serious here? It's so annoying. That's what I love about Belichick is he's the guy that will be like, how many times are you going to ask the same question? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at some point you have to ask. And I mean, I guess that's why Michael Jordan's got seven, quote unquote, security guards with him at all times, which I thought was bonkers. Did you guys see that? Yeah, what 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 did they call him? Yeah, the sniff team. Yeah, the sniff <laughs> team. Like, what was that? I thought that was so weird. It's Captain Sniff. Like, the guy with the mullet? Did you see that? The guy with the blonde mullet? Like, bro, the, these guys were, I mean, I don't know. I thought it was a weird, awkward group of men that just kind of, I guess, were protecting Michael. I don't know. That that room right there, though, with those groups, I'd love to be a fly on that wall. I think it'd be pretty funny. You know, we get into, uh, Scotty comes back now. He tells Jerry Krause, all right, fine, you want to trade me? I'll accept the trade. I'm not going to fight it anymore. And I like that he said in the show, he goes, the only reason I said that is because I knew that if I did, he'd say, oh, well, I'm not really going to trade you now. They're calling his bluff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I love seeing shit like that. You know, I love when the uh, when the product realizes how vital it is, you know what I mean, kind of thing. And, and Scotty's like, oh, okay, you want to fucking trade me? Go ahead, man, trade me. And then they say, oh, no, 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 we're not really going to. You know, that's that's cool as shit, you know. <laughs> yeah, he gets back and they talk about how now Dennis kind of starts this downward spiral. He starts losing his mind a little bit because – up until that point, him and Jordan are best buddies, right? They're the two team leaders, and now all of a sudden he goes to be in the third wheel, and it's just like a weird feeling for him to go from being Jordan's right-hand man to being, you know, just the guy that gets rebounds. Yeah, for everything he was on the court, he was certainly a uh, 
a character off the court, uh, a bit of a, uh, a drama queen. Uh, you know, if we go back to him wearing that wedding dress like you had brought up. Um, but, you know, we have a guy that dealt with um, emotions more recently and managing egos um, in Steve Kerr in terms of coaching the uh, Golden State Warriors uh, more recently to their dynasty. Um, but he was very uh, honest and candid saying, you know, to get the best out of Dennis, you had to give him a lot of rope. You know, you had to give him some slack because, you know, this is just the type of guy he is. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole Dennis thing and the third wheel thing, I mean, I think this this episode in general, I think kind of laid out a a picture of Dennis Rodman that I, I kind of had a clue on, but just wasn't really sure of. And that's, he's really a, a, a kind of like mentally fragile human being. And, and, you know, it's, it can snap on an instant. And you also mentioned the word queen. And, and I kind of had this discussion and, you know, this is wide open. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think maybe Dennis Rodman, you know, would like to be gender fluid at some point, you know, kind of thing like that. I don't think he really kind of, I think if he grew up in, in our day and age, he would see himself as gender fluid and things like that. And, and, and so to be kind of trapped in that, in a, in a masculine kind of sports thing. Now, obviously I have no idea if any of this is true. This is my speculation on him wearing dresses and acting very effeminate and things like that. And there's obviously nothing wrong with that, but I'm sure he found that very struggling as a human being, if that was very true. And it would, you know, attest to some of the mental struggles he had as a person. And, you know, he, he mentions, you know, he needs to get away and he needs a vacation and he goes to Vegas and, you know, he's going to say he's only be gone for 48 hours and we all know what happens next. Yeah. So like you mentioned, you know, the nineties is not an easy time to be trying to be yourself. Um, and so he partied hard, um, which a lot did in the nineties. Um, and that's what led to his vacation. Yeah, Michael says he's not coming back. And he says to Phil Jackson. Uh, all right, so cool. So that wraps up episode one. And then uh, we'll talk a little Phil Jackson in just a second. All right, so episode four starts off. We've got Dennis Rodman has now taken double the allotted 48 hours that they gave him, just like Michael Jordan said. And so MJ decides he's got to go up to the hotel room to grab him. Carmen Electra hides behind the couch. It's just a whole shit show, and they gotta drag him out of bed. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was it was pretty crazy. It was it was funny to watch. Uh, you know, uh, Dennis Rodman. You know, I think everybody knew he wasn't gonna come back. You know, Jordan had told him he wasn't gonna come back, and and they really didn't. You know, I take I don't think took Jordan's word to heart. You know, but I think Jordan knew his guy and knew Rodman wasn't gonna come back, and you know. Carmen Electra speaking to her, God, she's still a fucking smoke show, is she not? Like she is still just smoking hot. I, I forgot about how hot she was. So Not only did I forget how hot Carmen Electra was, I forgot that she existed. So it was really nice to see her back on screen and then the flashbacks to her sitting at the tables back in the day with Dennis Rodman out in Vegas. So uh things were certainly popping off. Yeah, she was a Playboy playmate and I actually remember her for taking over for Jenny McCarthy, I think, on Singled Out on MTV. Yeah, she did do that, too. That's right. She was also on uh, Baywatch, too, for a time with Pam Anderson, I'm pretty sure. So she was she was doing all the all the standard 90s, you know, women, hot woman things back then, but she deserved it. She was a smoke show. 
So they get Dennis out of bed. They drag him back to get him in shape for practice. Like, we got to do something to get Dennis in shape. So they start doing this Indian drill, which I remember doing myself. But it's like, you know, everyone runs around the court, and then the coach blows the whistle, and the guy at the back of the line has to run to the front of the line. So MJ's like, all right, guys, let's all dog it so that, you know, we're not running for hours for Dennis. And he said Dennis takes the lead, and it took him four laps to catch up. Yeah, I mean, I've done this drill, like you mentioned, you've done this drill, you know too then. If somebody actually does that and and you can't catch him, it is pure misery and it's the absolute worst. Uh, We used to do it too, that if you got caught by the front guy, then you had to run for the rest of practice, the next practice. Like, I mean, you had to run, run at that point. So, I mean, that's like the worst drill of all time, I remember. That thing sucked. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like... uh... Phil had some crazy philosophies to uh, get them physically ready, mentally ready. Um, and uh, knowing that you guys went through the same drills um, and had to go through that physical pain, um, you know, I, th- I know a lot of the fans will also know that they, they went through drills like that and know they know the physical pain as well. Um, but going into uh, Phil's um, his connection to the team where he tries to connect, you know, the Native American background, his Native American background, um, and that type of philosophy into um, the team. I, I like that connection. I like seeing that and his background with it and going back to when he was a kid. Yeah, I actually did find that really amazing too. Like that that part of it was honestly one of the more interesting parts I thought of the uh, of the whole episode, if I'm being quite honest. Uh, I mean, also like how, how perfect is Phil realizing it like – who people are and like becoming who they need him to be. Like, I think that's what really like made him stand out as a coach and what made him as great as he was. Like, you know, almost as like a therapist, like, you know, he would figure out like who you needed to be and just kind of like be that person for you to bring out the best in you. And I thought that's what made him so fucking great. And that's what I tell people when people dog on Phil for not being a great coach. I always say it's, you know, Phil Jackson is a certain type of coach. He's a personality manager. So he's a guy that you know, Dennis Robin can't play for any coach. And I think of coaches like Pat Riley. I don't think Pat Riley could coach Dennis Rodman, you know, but although Chuck Daly did, but I think that Dennis was, I mean, Phil was the perfect match for Dennis. Yeah, for sure. Especially in that, you know, city, in that place, you know, where, you know, there were already bigger stars and, and Rodman wasn't necessarily the biggest star and things like that. Uh, you know, you know, Kerr comes on there and, and mentions he's never, you know, met such a different genuine coach than Phil. And, you know, how like much greatness does, does Phil Jackson get for Steve Kerr's success in the NFL or in the NBA? Do you think? I'm not sure. I'm actually not a hundred percent familiar with Steve Kerr's, backstory i i know that he played on a couple of teams i always thought of him as just like a sharpshooter uh for the team uh, unless you mean as a coach like how much credit does phil get as for kerr as a coach yeah for kerr as a coach yeah for kerr's success as a coach yeah a yeah. ton i mean I, th- I think phil's coaching tree is underrated i think steve kerr is a, a great coach i think brian shaw is a really good coach who just kind of got a couple crappy situations, but I like him a lot as a head coach. Um, Derek Fisher, I don't even think is a bad coach. It just, you happen to be coaching the Knicks. That was a problem. Yeah. He had great success with amazing players. And I think that's why people question how great he really was because he's got 
two of the greatest shooting guards of all time and, and Jordan and Kobe. But I definitely agree with what you were saying, Wayne, as far as how he had to manage personalities. You think of at that one time, he had both Rodman and Jordan, and those are two huge egos that he had to manage amongst the other players. You know, think of the players on the bench that weren't getting the touches at the time and what he had to talk to those players about on a continual basis. So he did an amazing job throughout that entire run with the Bulls and then moving on to the Lakers, who, again, we know is Wayne's favorite team. Yeah, I thought it was uh, one of the cool things I thought is when they talked about Phil Jackson when he was a player, and I knew he played for the Knicks, and I knew he played on the Knicks championship team, but when they said that his style of play was very similar to Detroit Pistons' Dennis Rodman, just 100 miles per hour, grabbing rebounds, all of his points are basically put backs. I thought that was interesting, and I wondered if that was why he was able to connect with Dennis or why he liked Dennis so much. It was probably that, and also, you know, like I touched on a little bit before, the they both did have a, a bit of a Native American connection. You know, they touched on Dennis's necklace that he wore and how they had a connection there. So I think the Native American connection and then certainly how they both played, um, they're both hard-nosed guys um, who have a knack for the ball. So uh, I think that was a great point to make, and uh, it was great to see Phil on the court. You know, we see him in a suit and on the sideline a lot, so any Knicks highlights we can see is pretty fun. Yeah, most definitely. It was, like you said, I think one of the more interesting parts was actually seeing Phil Jackson play and being like, oh, damn, my man was an actual baller. Like, boy could play. Uh, Yeah, him playing a similar role to Dennis Rodman actually I think is – I think kind of gives him more of a respect. I think, you know, Rodman kind of knows that like, oh, okay, like he did kind of the same thing. So whatever he's telling me probably does work or something like that. And it had to have some kind of connection for them for sure. I thought it was interesting, too. They talk about Phil Jackson getting the start of his coaching career and coaching down in Puerto Rico. And they said, like, all these little towns that had bad blood with each other. It was like rival gangs. They said it was one episode or one game. The uh, the mayor of the town shoots the referee, and he gets banned for the rest of the home games. Which doesn't seem like a harsh enough penalty, but I guess you get to uh, you get to do that in the era when you're the mayor of that part. But uh, it, you know he certainly worked his way up the ranks as far as the the Puerto Rican uh, basketball league, um, and then you know becoming an assi- or becoming an assistant coach in the NBA. But he even had to struggle to become an assistant coach with the Bulls. He wanted to be one under Albeck, but wasn't. Um, so uh, we had to wait until uh, a little bit further on for him to get onto that coaching staff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really crazy that an American come down, shoot the ref, and not even, like, spend a night in jail or anything. That's really funny. You know, who knew Puerto Rican basketball was that lit? Man, I had no idea it was that crazy. Uh, I mean, you know, but Phil, like you, like you mentioned, Jesse, you know, he put his ranks thin. You know, he, he went in and, you know, coached the Albany Patrons of the uh, Canadian Basketball League, and in a year he gave him a title. You know what I mean? So, like you mentioned, the Bulls really, I think, wanted him. You know what I mean? Uh, obviously, Stan Albeck didn't. I think, you know, he didn't like the the outfit Phil wore or something like that, which I think is crazy, you know. But Phil's hippie background, you know, the the, the issue of him taking LSD, like I remember that guy talked about that. Like I thought that was really cool. So I'm assuming he didn't, he didn't vibe with Stan Albeck's personality. Well, do you think he wins championships in Puerto Rico? He wins the championship in the CBA. And it reminds me, I don't have it here as a note, but it reminds me, of the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, David Blatt, when they go out and get him. The guy's a champion in every league he's ever coached in, and LeBron runs the guy out of town after getting him to the finals. I think David Blatt is a phenomenal X's and O's coach. He's phenomenal. But unlike Phil, he doesn't have the psychology part of it, and I think that's why LeBron ran him out. I think if Phil coached LeBron, he would know exactly what to say and how to say it to get the best out of LeBron. 
I think now more than ever, it's about managing egos in the NBA. And David Blatt certainly struggled to do that here in the NBA because he succeeded so much. So in Europe where, you know, we can't name any of those players really right now without deep research. So, you know, they aren't as prevalent online or in the media, whereas in the NBA, half the guys are divas. So he wasn't really put on this earth to coach divas. He was put on this earth to coach basketball players. And that's why he wins over there. Yeah, I see he does join the coaching staff, Doug Collins, still the head coach, and Phil comes in as the assistant, and he hooks up with Tex Winter, the other assistant, and I know that Tex, I didn't know the background that Tex was an assistant on the Bulls with Collins, I knew he's always been Phil Jackson's right-hand man, any team that Phil's ever coached, and I know that he came up with the idea of the triangle offense, the whole idea of moving the ball via passing versus one-on-one dribbling and isolation plays. And Phil and him just hit it off. They spend every waking hour together, right? Just Phil's mastering the triangle offense, trying to learn everything he can. And Doug Collins absolutely hates Tex Winter. You know, gives him the boot. He can't sit on the bench anymore because you keep talking to the players about running the triangle. Get the hell out of here. Yeah, I mean, that was crazy, honestly. I, I love that part. So, again, I think you got to give a test to Jerry Krause here. Like, he's the one who found Tex and calls him the greatest basketball mind he's ever been around. And, and you know, um... Uh, Jesus, why can't I think of his name right now? Sorry. Oh, okay, Jesus. Okay, so Phil Jackson didn't find Tex Winter and bring him in with him. You know, Jerry Krause brought him in and then put those two together, and then they became the team they were. So, you know, Jerry Krause has to get credit for building that tandem, too. So, I mean, for again, for as much as we hate Jim, Jerry Krause and, and kind of the human being he was, God, the guy was such a business savant. Like, he just made great decision after great decision there in that 90s run. Yeah, Mr. Swaghammer ended up uh, firing Doug Collins. Um, and uh, we know that Michael Jordan didn't love that move because, as I mentioned before in the episode, I think they really enjoyed each other because they both shared a real competitive drive. Yeah, not only that, he's coming off a, you know, an Easter Conference Finals trip. You know what I mean? So it's like to fire a guy like that is super tough to do. You know, I mean, that's rough. I mean, the, the reporter, did you guys see that? When the reporter comes on and goes, if you're getting ready for work right now, you're probably not Doug Collins. That is the most savage news tagline I've ever imagined. Like, like, oh my God, seeing that today, that's incredible. Like, that's incredible. It's ice cold. I, I think that man deserved an Emmy for that. For sure. Yeah, so they make Phil the head coach. He's got Texas as right hand man. I know they show the press conference and they say, Hey, Phil, do you talk to Michael? And he's like, Yeah, I talk to him every single day. Like, I'm the assistant coach. Now I'm just the head coach. You know, we talk all the time. But Michael did make it very clear that he did not like the triangle system. Uh, he was upset that Doug got fired, not only because he was friends with Doug, but just this idea that he loved the idea of isolation basketball because he could dominate everybody. And I think that Phil coming in saying, Listen, we've got this offense where you're going to share the ball more with everybody. And he was like, uh, I'm not sharing the ball with anybody. Yeah, I think that Jordan, among everybody, really struggled with the triangle offense. Uh, he wasn't ashamed to say, and I think other players weren't ashamed to say, that it took the team as a whole time to adjust. Um, I remember seeing B.J. Armstrong, a point guard from that team, mention you know, it took them about a full year to get that under their belt and really understand it and be able to use it successfully, and that that really uh, came about in the right time when uh, they were getting to the Eastern Conference Finals again. Yeah, most definitely. You know, Michael's, you know, talking about how he doesn't want Bill Cartwright to have the ball in his hands and things like that. And they say, you know, there's no I in team, but there's an I in win. You know, I mean, that I love that statement right there. I mean, I know Kobe says a similar statement, and I don't have it verbatim. I'm sure you do, Wayne. What's the statement that Kobe said? Yeah, he said there is an M and an E in that motherfucker. 
Yeah, see, so, I mean, that that mentality right there is just, you know, I want the ball in my hands because I trust myself and I know I can get it, the job done. You know, for all of Bill Cartwright's strengths, you know, obviously scoring is, is not going to be one that you think about when you think about Bill Cartwright, you know what I mean? So uh, I just think that I think I think there's a point to what Michael had to say, but, you know, it took him a, a while to realize, hey, look, if I trust these guys around me that, you know, I don't have to – put up 60 points you know I can still put up 40 and we can win more ball games yeah that system was really implemented with the Bulls specifically to beat that Pistons team that was you know focusing on beating down Michael Jordan because he was the one that was being the main focus on the offense so you know the more that they got to get it under their belt and become better with it the more equipped they were to surpass that team once they reached the Eastern Conference Finals again as part of the offense, Scottie Pippen essentially becomes the league's first point forward. Uh, he was a point guard in college. He that grew had a growth spurt, and then he became a powerful, not a powerful, small forward, but a muscular small forward. He becomes the first point forward, and in 1990, he makes his first All-Star game, the first of seven. And I thought it was interesting to note that Scottie Pippen was a seven-time All-Star, but he was a ten-time NBA All-Defense and eight-time first-team NBA All-Defense. So I guess he's just more valuable, valuable as a defender than he is as a, an All-Star or a popular player. He's definitely known more for his defense than his offense. And again, you know, the, I think we all know the All-Star votes, you know, just a popularity contest. So for, for all his accolades on the defensive side of the ball and things like that, you know, he's not probably going to get a ton of recognition for it on the casual fan side. So, you know, it's not really that surprising. What well, Seeing him play the point forward, though, I think is in, incredibly fun to watch, though. Like, that was really cool. That was a... Uh, I mean, to see him move that gracefully, you know, it reminds you a lot of LeBron or, you know, a lot of these other bigger guys like Luka Doncic that are just moving the ball like, you know, when they're 6'8 and things like that. You know, seeing Scotty do it back in 98 and being a trendsetter was, was a really cool thing to witness. Now, let me ask you guys, was he really a trendsetter at that point when we saw a guy who was little 6'9 doing it for the Lakers, winning championships? I mean... Magic Johnson was super versatile, bringing the ball down the court, posting guys up. I mean, wouldn't he be truly considered that, that first point forward? Yeah, but he was never a forward. Like, Magic was all yes, he played center when he had to be. Magic was a point guard to start. You know what I mean? Like, that was kind of his position to begin with. So, I, I, when I say point forward, I mean somebody that's like genuinely always a small forward, but he just brings the ball up the court. So, you know what I mean? Like, Magic was the point guard position on his teams. That definitely makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, to touch back on what Wayne said, I think in FBAS drafts, uh, Scottie Pippen is always drafted early because of his defensive prowess. Uh, him and a guy like Kawhi always drafted because, you know, those guys are going to lock down whoever you have being your top scoring option. Um, and uh, didn't really seem to be that top scoring option when it came to that Detroit Pistons series. Yeah, it was game seven, uh, was it not, boys? Yeah, game seven was the migraine game. That was the game they lose by 20 in game seven of the ECF. And I thought it was funny that right off the bat, they said to Michael, they said, you know, was this uh, Scotty's migraine game? And he just goes, yeah. Oh, you could see his eyes roll behind him and on the floor. I mean, he he couldn't have been more pissed off. You know, it. you see this guy's disgust, and we, we guys have certainly touched on his narcissism and his uh, two-faced, uh, you know, nature. You know, and, and I can certainly see it now, too. I mean, the fact that he was completely pissed off with Scotty for having migraines. But when you think of it, 
Jordan's pretty famous for playing during a flu game. And I start to question, I don't start to, but I, I really question if that was the flu or was it just a hangover seeing how bloodshot this guy's eyes are at the time. So uh, I, I see that as a pr- bit of a hypocritical move. Well, not only that, I mean, personally, I've never had a migraine, so I, I can't really attest to them. I've also, you know, I, the only time I've really had any kind of like throbbing head pain was after a car accident and it was like, you know, more concussion symptoms and pain. So it's I can't really attest to the same thing. But what I can say is like vision and blurred lights, especially like bright lights would, would mess with my head a lot. And I can only imagine trying to play through that and, and what he was going through. And that's got to be difficult if it actually happened. You know, I know nothing about Scottie Pippen or if it was or wasn't happening or blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to believe the guy, you know, and, and, and that's just incredible. You know, MJ's game was, was nuts that game. I think he went 31-8-8 eight and eight with no Scotty in the second half. I mean, that's impressive. Like, the guy just balled out. I know in the offseason after losing, MJ says, you know what, I'm tired of getting the crap kicked out of me. He says to all of his teammates, he said, guys, we're not going on vacation. We're not having an offseason where we all relax. Everybody's in the weight room and just kicks everybody's ass and tells them all to lift weights and get stronger. And he puts on 15 pounds of muscle, which if you think about his physique and just his you know, uh, metabolism and how he's built, putting on 15 pounds of muscle, if you're Michael Jordan, I think is just insane. Yeah, and you know, we're going to have these hot takes every every episode, and here's one for me. Why is there no steroid talk with Michael Jordan? You know, I understand basketball athletes aren't normally known for that, and I don't think there's ever been one busted, has there? But, I mean, like you said, putting on 15 pounds when you're burning probably 7,000 calories, 8,000 calories a day, something like that, is so incredibly difficult to do. I don't think the average person understands. And so, like, I mean, you got to attest to him and his work ethic, but also, you know, the 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 cons- conspiracy theory side of me thinks, I don't know, man, there's, there's got to gotta be some kind of help there, I think. Well, Jordan's certainly not short on conspiracy theories when it comes to his career in the NBA. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, again, you're looking for an edge. You're trying to win the championship. And going back to John Sally's comment, how bad do you want it? I think Michael Jordan, if he thought that taking steroids and putting on 15 pounds of muscle was going to get him over the hump, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he took him. Yeah, I actually agree with that take, too. Honestly, I don't think he would find it, you know, kind of like, oh, no, I, I think he would do anything he could to win the game. And, and it, it would make kind of sense to me, too, for he for him to do something like that. So they get in the gym and they say Mike is just leading by example. He's pushing everybody. He's he's on the bench press and he's like, you guys got to do this. He's in the gym. He's yelling at everybody. He's like, if I'm running, you're running. And I know that leaders lead by example. So I definitely think he did that. But I know that Michael Jordan also has kind of a reputation as a leader as being a bit of a bully. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of tell that, I think, from the entire time that that's just kind of his leadership style. And I mean, honestly, some guys are like that. And you're either going to, when you're that great, you kind of either got to get with the program or get lost. And, you know, it's, so it's tough to kind of argue. I mean, like, what are you really going to say to the guy? He's, he's arguably, I mean, at that point, he's arguably the greatest player of all time. I mean, he would, you know, eventually become that, I think. And, you know, there were still arguments then. But, you know, so really, what are you going to say to the guy? So even if his style is a bit abrasive and a bit, you know, off-putting, you kind of got to deal with it and just rise to the occasion. And it did make players great. You know, he did. He was able to get Dennis Rodman to play to an elite level. You know, he was able to get Scottie Pippen to play to an elite level and things like that. So whatever he did was pretty much working. 
Yeah, his assertiveness and his drive has always been part of who he is. So I think it's what made him so successful. It's what helped him be successful with players from all around, you know, backgrounds. So, you know, like Dan said, uh, you know, it's who he is. And uh, I don't think anybody can really question what it turned out to be. And I think it's funny. The episode doesn't really waste any time on the 91 season. They just go, Jordan's lifting weights and they get back to the ECF. And they sweep, they sweep the Pistons four games to zero, and that was the big no shaking hands. They did a whole, I mean, probably five, seven minutes on how the Pistons just walked off the court and didn't shake hands. And I thought Horace Grant calling them straight up bitches was fantastic. You notice he's wearing an NBA Care shirt when he says that. <laughs> I did notice that, bro. M- speaking of Jack, Horace Grant looked cock swole diesel in his interview. Boy, it was big, yoked. But I mean, they were straight up bitches. Like, let's be real. Like, I don't know. Like that. That just again irked me so bad. Like I mentioned before, like I kind of no respect for the cheap shots they did. That just made me even respect them even less. Like, you know, we speak like JV. I know is a huge, huge, huge Isaiah Simmons fan. I mean, uh, <laughs> my God, uh, NFL draft talk still in me there. Uh, and uh, Isaiah. Uh, oh my God! Somebody help me out here, guys. Thomas Jesus a big Isaiah Thomas fan and I know JV supports him a lot and you know I just could never get really behind Isaiah I I know his game's kind of good and it's actually really good I say kind of good obviously this game's great but I just don't like him as a person and even today when he keeps throwing out these little jabs every now and then it's like I don't know it just seems like he's so petty and so like I don't know I hate that shit it bothers me so much yeah, I did like that Michael pointed out that every time they lost to the Pistons, whatever it was, two, three years in a row, it was every time we lost, I shook every one of those guys' hands before I left the floor. That, and I was pissed. I didn't want to shake anybody's hand, but that's just what you do. You, you don't walk off the court without shaking hands. Yeah, I mean, you see the producer trying to show Mike what Isaiah Thomas was going to say, and it's just so funny. See, he's, I don't want to see it. I already know what's happening. I, this guy's just going to try and say if he could go back, he'd change it. But, you know, he doesn't give a shit. It's, it's what he meant in the time, and, you know, the fact that he walked off the court, you know, I have no respect for it. I have no respect for him. You know, so still to this day, you see that they have bitter feelings for each other. Well, his exact quote, I think, was, you know, there's no way you can convince me that he's not an asshole. And I think that bad blood goes way back. If I remember reading an article correctly, it goes way back to Isaiah Thomas in the All-Star game. I think maybe Mike's first All-Star game, freezing him out, like telling all the other veterans, like, hey, let's not pass Michael the ball in this All-Star game. And that got back to Michael. And ever since then, he just hated the guy. And then, of course, you had the whole Pistons beating him up. And then you had the whole nod shaking hands. And I think Michael just had a really long, bad history with Isaiah Thomas. Wow, if that all-star bit's really true, I mean, that's cold. I mean, see, that's just another reason I hate Isaiah Thomas. Man, see, fuck Isaiah. God. <laughs> well, I think, you know, you guys share some hate for Isaiah Thomas. I'm not a huge fan of him, even though I am a Pistons fan at heart. But, uh, you know, the fact that Michael Jordan hated him, he took it to a new level when that dream team that is still world-renowned, I think, you know, there are rumors that Michael hated him so much that his influence with Rod Thorne as part of that team kept Isaiah Thomas off that team and as a whole. And, you know, you consider Isaiah Thomas's high school, collegiate, and NBA career. He's got championships galore. The guy's got points and assists. Amazing player, top 50 player. But the guy never played on the dream team because he never shook hands with Mike. 
I, I keep hoping that the next episode's going to touch on that because we're right around that dream team time where they're picking the, the players. And I know that Rod Thorns come out and said, oh, that never came up. You know, Michael just said, I'm not sure if I want to play. I already have a gold medal. And then he was like, all right, I guess I'll play. He never mentioned Isaiah at all. And I'm calling BS on that. Are you telling me Chuck Daly was the head coach and he wanted Tim Hardaway over Isaiah Thomas? That's bullshit. Yeah, you just said you just mentioned my point. If Chuck Daly was the head coach, Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas's boy was the head coach, and you're telling me he picked a different point guard? There's no way in hell. MJ was chirping it out there and said, "Hey, I'm telling you right now, if you pick Isaiah Thomas, I'm not going to play on this team." You know, Scotty's. I'm sure he challenged a lot of them and said a lot of these guys won't play if you have them you know just to kind of flex his muscle and and that's i think crazy i hope they like you said when i really hope they touch on it now i noticed that uh, they get to that trivia thing again where they give you three seconds to guess the answer and i didn't even really care about the answer i just thought it was crazy that in 20 seasons as a head coach phil jackson never had a single losing season yeah, again, he's got Jordan and then Kobe and Shaq as part of his coaching career, so a bit of a leg up. But we've also touched on how hard it is to manage those egos and those personalities. So to have 20 seasons and not a single losing one is such an achievement. It's super admirable. I mean, that's crazy to think about. I mean, just not even to avoid uh, – it's not even just about the coaching too, to avoid like the crazy injury or something like that or – you know, I mean, we're seeing it right now with Golden State. The team just won 70-some-odd games, and then two years later, two injuries happen, and they're going to be a below 500 team. Like, you know, you never know what can happen. And just for Phil to avoid all of that and be such a great coach, I mean, it's such an incredible career. Well, I think that it's a testament, too, that his players, you know, Jordan we talked about in the, the previous episode or whatever, couple episodes ago saying I won't play for any other coach besides Phil and I know Kobe came out even with Phil writing a book and saying that Kobe was the most difficult player he ever coached for Kobe to come out and say I want Phil Jackson and I don't want to play for anyone other than Phil Jackson I think except for Mike Krzyzewski that was the only exception that he made so I'll play for Coach K or I'll play for Phil but I don't want to play for Rudy Tomjanovich Kobe was going to go to Duke um, before he declared for the NBA draft and you know I mean this is a guy who has you know a 12, 13, 1400 SATs, whatever it is. Super, super smart guy. I saw a, a meme on Facebook floating around where they had Dwayne Wade. They were talking about when he Kobe came onto the Redeem team, I guess it was called, and Kobe joins the team, and Dwayne Wade said every country that they visited, Kobe would talk to the people in their own language. He could speak every language of every country they went to. Yeah, I knew I knew Kobe had a, a great respect for Coach K, and I didn't realize that he would said he would only play for him or, or Phil Jackson, which, you know, I think, again, just gives the respect to Phil and, and what he could do, you know, with these great guys and, and how he could really bring the best out of them. And that's what I think they all crave and they all want. Once you get to that elite level talent, you want somebody that is going to challenge you and bring the best out of you and be able to tap into that hidden potential you have. And that's what made Phil great. I mean, you know, you mentioned a note here that when you say people don't call, don't think Phil's great, you know, because like what Jesse said, he had the leg up of Jordan and Pippen and Shaq and Kobe. Well, I mean, they, they, like you said, they can get fucked. Like, you know how hard it is to win NBA basketball games? I don't care who you got, and especially with two stars and stars that don't get along in the Shaq and Kobe instance and just to manage those volatile personalities is a insanely difficult job in itself and then to also be an incredible basketball mind i mean phil's just such a legend 
Now they go into the finals. It's the Lakers and the Bulls. We have Magic versus MJ. And they didn't touch on it in the episode, but I've heard interviews where Jordan really wanted to play against Magic in the finals because he had just beaten Isaiah and the Pistons. And he, his theory was you can't be the best unless you beat the best. And he hadn't beaten Bird at that point, and he hadn't beaten Magic. So the opportunity to beat Magic in the finals, he was relishing it. Yeah, I mean, we know his competitive drive, and I think every fan wanted that too. I mean, when you think of the superstars in the league now, I'm not even sure if we could get two stars matched up against each other that would have been more marketable at their peak than Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson. I mean, these guys had smiles for days and skills beyond that. So to get this finals appearance in 91 was awesome. Yeah, it's a dream come true for the league. I mean, in every way possible. They get their biggest faces, you know, finally to get to play each other for the biggest, you know, prize of them all. And, I mean, it was it was a great series in, in general. It was a really good one. I did point out, or in my notes here, I have game two is when we have the infamous switching hands, uh, you know, shot, which is, when I think of Jordan, you think of his infamous, iconic images. One of them is the shot over Elo, which they showed earlier. And then the other one is the switching hands with Marv Albert saying, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And uh, I remember watching an interview with Magic Johnson where, uh, you know, he talked about Jordan going up and he was going to dunk it. Like Jordan went up with the right hand. He said he was going to dunk it. But then I think Sam Perkins might have been on the Lakers. I can't remember. He said, but I think Perkins went up to go block the shot. He goes, and I'm watching MJ and he's got his tongue out and he just holds it for a second. I said, he's not going to do this. Not against me. Not against us. Yes, he is. He goes, and then he switched hands and he just kissed it with the English. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's such an infamous play. It's it's such an incredible play to watch. And you also have a note that it's so unnecessary. And I've thought that since the day I've seen this play. Like, why does he even switch hands to begin with? And, you know, you watch the play and you look closely. And, yes, there is a, a Laker there that, I, I mean, he cocks his hands back like he's going to jump. But then you also see him like, nah, I ain't rising up to get dunked on by MJ in the finals. Like, that ain't going to happen. So he doesn't even bother to jump. And MJ yet still switches hands. I mean, maybe he's already in, in, in motion there. But, uh, I mean, I feel like it was so unnecessary but so beautiful to see, obviously. I wanted to make sure to mention that the Bulls actually had home court advantage in that series. So they were starting that series in Chicago. And, you know, we jumped right into game two in an unnecessary highlight that I love to see as well. But in game one, the Lakers actually won um, in uh, a very close game. It was won by a late bucket. So uh, they both left that game with very different ideas. Um, And then game two happened and a bit of a defensive change in that game. Yeah, Scottie Pippen starts taking Magic uh, full-court press. And I know Michael was saying, at that point, nobody does that. Nobody guards Magic full-court. He goes, Scottie took him full-court. And I think the other thing he said was, like, I went up against Scottie every day in practice, so I knew how frustrated Magic was getting. Yeah, I mean, like we mentioned, Pippen is the point forward, and then you immediately threw Magic's name out there because of the size and length and things like that. And I I think that's why Pippen is, you know, such a great matchup. He's able to be a point forward, so he clearly has the uh, agility and and quickness to be a point guard. So naturally, he could probably cover Magic to the length of the floor, and so they they pulled that out, and it worked brilliantly. I mean, we, we obviously saw the results. And You know, just something I noticed from these scores in general when they always list them, I see like the max, it's like a 110 to 108 in double overtime and stuff like that. It's like 94 to 86. If Jordan plays today, how many points does he average a game? Like legitimate question, how many points do we think he averages a game? If he plays, if he starts his career in his prime and like, you know, and has it in his prime in today's age. 
Yeah, you have to remember those early years when he was averaging 37 and 36, he was going up against guys. You know, we talk about Wilt Chamberlain averaging 50, but who was he playing against? Jordan averaged 37, but really, who was he playing against? He was playing against unathletic, shorter, weaker guys, and he took advantage of that. Great for him. But I think in nowadays league, when the eighth man on the Sacramento Kings is as athletic as Michael Jordan is, it's going to be a lot harder for him to do a lot of the stuff that he did so easily. Now, granted, Jordan adapted his game as he got older and as the league started to get more athletic, So, and he continued to average 30 points per game, but I think that that's a good marker for him. I think 30 to 34 points per game is what he'd do today because he would adapt his game to kind of fit that average. I don't know. I just think with the increased scoring, I think he'd flirt somewhere more around the 40 point. I think it'd be like like what Harden's doing now, like 36, 37, you know, 38. So I think that's where he would be. But, I mean, the God, the sky's the limit, you know, because also three-point was kind of never his thing. He, he excelled, like we mentioned last episode, or about last episode. He excelled at that jumper. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a dying shot, a dead shot in today's game. So, But I assume he would have adjusted. I think if we saw Jordan try and play like Harden, we'd see the inception of the Jordan Rules 2.0. He'd get crushed in this era. Uh, I don't know, because Harden doesn't, and Harden drives the lane a lot, and Westbrook too. Westbrook attacks the rim like probably nobody we've seen in a really long time. Like He goes right at the rim, and nobody puts Harden on, I mean, nobody puts Westbrook on his ass. So I think that you know it's a softer league. I don't think people would knock him down. Yeah, I don't think so. And Harden gets half his points at the free throw line. I think that's where Jordan would excel. I think he'd get you know, 25 points a game at the free throw line. The game five, it's 80-80 in the fourth quarter. And, you know, the coach says, Phil Jackson says, find John Paxson. He's like, who's open? And Jordan says, Paxson's open. He goes, then find him. Get him the ball. You know, so he gets him the ball and knocks down a shot. And Jordan's like, all right, right, I'll throw him the ball again. He hits another shot. And I think that's when the light switch goes off. It seems like in the episode where he's like, now I realize my teammates can score. My teammates can do things. Like I don't have to do it all. Even though he'd been doing the triangle for two years at that point, it was Paxson hitting those shots that he realizes, I can lean on these guys. Well, as Sully had mentioned, I mean, he didn't really have respect or trust in his teammates to do it when it mattered. I mean, when he spoke about Bill Cartwright having the ball in late-game situations and a guy like John Paxson, I mean, these guys had to prove themselves. But in the same token, Mike had to give them the opportunities for these guys to prove themselves. So we saw Paxson get that opportunity, and once he hit one, Jordan knew that he was going to be able to hit another and another and another. So that was great to see him start to build that trust in his teammates. I believe he averaged 11 assists in that series, though. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely thought that was a really cool take. To see him, uh, you know, like you you mentioned, Wayne, the light bulb kind of went off. And, like, they, they kind of made it even seem like that in the episode. Like, oh, snap. Like, I don't have to do everything, and we can win ball games. And, and that's what really was, I think, the, the whole turning point in, at everything in Chicago. And they win the championship. You know, Jordan gets the trophy. He's crying. And I think all the teammates uh, that they interviewed said, you know, we had never seen him emotional. Like, we'd seen him yelling at people and seen him angry and frustrated, but we'd never seen him, like, emotional, like, crying. It was, like, a weird sight for them. Yeah, I mean, the brace, the embrace he has with his father and the trophy, When it, you know, we've all seen that iconic photo where he's holding the trophy and crying, but then when his father comes up and he starts crying and they, he holds him as he's holding the trophy, I mean, I'm not going to lie, it made me tear up a little. I mean, it was so, like, uh, I mean, just moving, and it's just so touching and to just see somebody who, you know, you knew tried so hard to achieve a goal for so long, and then also, like we mentioned in in the episode one, where you know he wanted his father's approval so bad, and then to get the championship that he craved, and to get his father's approval right there in that moment, I thought was just beautiful to watch. 
Well, if that one gets you, I'm sure the next episode or two when you know he comes back to basketball after his dad's murdered and they win that championship on Father's Day, that first one, and he just falls in the locker room and starts crying on the floor. Oh, yeah, that's going to – I mean, it's going to be heartbreaking. I mean, I know the story, but, yeah, it's going to be heartbreaking. Now, they fast-forward from the championship. They show the guys on the, the plane playing cards. And I know uh, Jordan's playing with Scotty Burrell, who I recognize right away. I always like Scott Burrell as a player. He played at UConn. But he was a superstar, A-plus, minor league baseball prospect. Guy had a 98-mile-per-hour fastball. I thought that was kind of cool to see him. And then also Jordan talking about, like, oh, is your girlfriend watching this? Because this guy goes out every night. He's not staying in. Yeah, I mean, this guy may have a fireball, you know, but uh, Jordan certainly outed this guy completely on tape. He was begging Jordan not to air it, not to tape it. Um, so uh, call him an alcoholic, saying he's getting with all the girls. It was certainly crazy to see Jordan just dump on a guy like that. Isn't that what D'Angelo Russell did? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what D'Angelo Russell did. Yeah, I mean, that was really funny. I was dying watching that. It was hilarious. Just dra- just ragging on the guy. That poor dude, man. I feel bad for him, honestly. So uh, the episode actually kind of wraps up with Jerry Krause goes public in the newspaper and kind of makes – we already knew this, but he kind of says, you know, we want Mike back, but there's no way in hell I'm bringing Phil back. Like, Phil's done. This is his last year. And they were saying, why would Jerry Krause come out with this now while they're in the middle of a championship run? And Mike comes out and says, I'm not playing for anybody else. I understand he wants me back, but that's the deal. Phil doesn't come back. I don't come back. End of story. And they're like, well, he said Phil's not coming back. He goes, well, then I'm not coming back. And then you hear the announcer say, is this the end of the Bulls as we know it? Yeah, then we see the episode fade off. Uh, once again, an amazing episode, an amazing night of the Last Dance documentary. I can't wait for this weekend's episode so that we can recap it, but I just want to soak it all up. I think this has been an awesome uh, documentary so far for sure to be able to take all this in and see the bits and pieces that nobody has ever been able to see before. Yeah, I, I think what they're doing is just brilliant, and I, I'm just really, really, really excited to see the rest of it. I mean, I'm counting down the days till every Sunday now. And like I said, the two things that I really want to see next episode, if they're going to talk about the Dream Team, I want to hear him say, I kept Isaiah off the Dream Team, and then put up two fucking middle fingers. Um, you know, That's the first thing I want to see. And then the second thing I want to see is when they're showing the footage from the Dream Team practicing and whatnot, I want to see him Taco Bell diarrhea shitting all over Christian Leitner. <laughs> As a Duke guy, I can't believe you'd say that. I, I love Leitner. He's my favorite college player of all time, I think. But I just, it just because we know that Jordan shit on everybody, and that was the one college guy on the team. You know that everybody was dumping on him. And Jordan was leading the charge. That's awesome. I have some notes about uh, Scotty and Dennis's sons, actually. They're both playing collegiately right now. I didn't know if you guys knew that, but uh, they be, they both are juniors. Scotty Jr. plays in the SEC for Vanderbilt, and he was an SEC first-teamer. Um, and uh, Dennis Jr. plays for Washington State. Um, so they're both in the same year, um, certainly younger than uh, Jordan's kids, who we saw Marcus and Jeffrey um, have uh, a much – less uh, successful careers than we saw Jordan, uh, Michael Jordan have. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Marcus, I think, played at University of Central Florida, and Jeff played uh, at Illinois for a year or so and didn't even finish. Like, he didn't finish playing. He dropped off the team and just got his degree, and I think he's like a lawyer or a sports management guy or something now. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I could care less about Scotty Jr. or Scotty Pippen's kids or Dennis Rodman's kids, so. Right, so that is the episode, the long episode that you guys all sat around for. We certainly appreciate it. And we definitely encourage you guys to get out and vote for us for show of the month so that we can win. You can vote multiple times. Just give us as many votes as you can possibly give us because it is going to be a dog 
What's it? What's the term? Dogfight. It's going to be a dogfight. <laughs> I don't know why I couldn't think of it. Um, all right. And so uh, definitely appreciate it. I won't cut it. Um, so thanks so much for that. And definitely, you know, subscribe. Like us on Facebook. Like us on Twitter. Like Follow us on Twitter. Like us on uh, – give us five stars on Apple, iTunes. Just really definitely help support the show because we love putting the show out there and we hope you guys like what you're hearing. Yeah, guys, don't forget, you know, rate, review, you know, we appreciate the listen. We thank you so much. You know, vote, 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 you know, all devices, you know, you can vote separately, every device, all devices, once a day. Please get it in there, rtfsportsnetwork.com, and then go ahead and vote for Facebook All Sports. Uh, we would really appreciate that. You know, we, we, we appreciate the listen, so we'll see you again next week. Yeah, grab your girl's phone, grab your mom's phone, grab your dad's phone, and I'm about to grab Kenny the Jet Smith's phone because...